The Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. We're in season two, covering the top 100 albums of the 1970s. And now your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt. of March 9th, 2022, and you are listening to the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, Season 2, Episode 33. We have but four episodes left, including this one, in our journey through the 70s, which is an amazing journey, and will be again tonight. Uh, Before I malinger too long in an intro and talk about our various platforms and all that fun stuff, I'm going to do a check-in before I do all the the, uh, housekeeping stuff on that front. Josh, how are you, bud? I'm do- I'm doing great. I have mixed feelings about leaving the 70s, as I've told you guys. I feel like the music spoke to me, but and I keep finding albums that I'm interested in. But then I realize, well, just because we don't talk about them on the podcast doesn't mean I can't have to listen. I can still listen to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> you make most of your decisions <laughs> by what the podcast allows you to do. Yeah, I'm totally That's dictated a- by the podcast. Well, then I've got an album for you that I listened to this week, Josh, that could give you some ideas about life and society, but (laughs) we'll get there eventually. Matt, what are your ideas on life and society? Oh, wow. We don't have enough time for that. Um, Did you get any ideas from the album you covered this week about life and society? No. Perhaps cities? Perhaps life during wartime? (laughs) And and Matt, is that because... It will take you too long to formulate them or because your ideas are so intense. Or because you're, quote, unquote, not a lyrics guy. So Right. Well, <laughs> they're, on, they're on a different type of level. So talking and, and verbalizing them will do, you know, you won't understand it. So oh, okay. it's just a feeling. It's that it's like higher an level? Aura. It's an aura. Yeah. Wow. It's just a, it's just an ease in the ether. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, I did like, have a, I did have a. Like track uh, one, ether? <laughs> yes. Yes. There you go. Mm-hmm. I did have a massage earlier a couple hours ago, so. I'm feeling oh, really? loose. So you should yeah. be in prime form then. An expensive yeah. massage, Josh, or Matt, or a cheap <laughs> yeah. massage? Well, we don't need to get into that. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair <laughs> it's enough. It's part of a monthly subscription. I'll just say that. We're a judgment-free zone right here. Is that's something why your we're... wife provides? Is that what? Yeah. <laughs> 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 or a machine of some sort? But... <laughs> well, very... we've gone... <laughs> We've got off top. You want to finish that, Matt? I'll, let, I'll give you the last I was word. Say we're, ve- we're very tech- technologically savvy in this household. So. Mm, okay. okay. Well, there Let's you go. Leave well, it to the listeners to decode what that means. Throw your best memes on Twitter to us. To, <laughs> it means, to, to it means I, 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 means. I cut cable and I just have streaming services. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. 
Wow. No coaxial in this piece. If you subscribe <laughs> to Pornhub, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he really means, Josh. Well, well, now that we've talked about all that, let me talk about our platforms real quick. We are not on Pornhub, so spoiler alert. Unfortunately, you <laughs> won't find yet. us there. <laughs> oh, great minds think alike there. Uh, we are on 12 other platforms, though, including all of the major ones, including Spotify, which Josh is currently in a breakup with. Uh, I don't know if we're supposed to say that out loud, because Anchor, which we use for this, is through Spotify. I'm still very much on Spotify using it, so we have a difference of opinion. But Josh... What do you use right now? And let's see if we're on that platform. I am you... on Amazon Music. I do not believe we are on Amazon Music. Let but... me look in the Josh, maybe you can time. talk to them and like We are the... on Amazon Music. How? We are. Okay, I guess they just because sol- everything is much on. like everything Amazon, they just decided that they were going to distribute us. Yep, John, you weren't aware of this. You didn't. You didn't Can you be at a more shit? discounted rate than a non-advertisement funded podcast? With no cost involved, can can you be a more a good better deal than that for the listener? Or all of our all of our episodes are there, so you can definitely go wow. there and listen to them. So I'll just add that is the unofficial thirteenth <laughs> platform I knew we didn't know we had, but we're on others that were nice more, enough. John. Thirteen yeah, plus, who knows how many more? Just floating around in the <laughs> cyberspace, as we mentioned before, probably on some GeoCities account. You know what I mean? From the uh, I've from sent the it to the dark web. The dark, the dark web. But people are bartering for it, along with God knows what else. But well, we're on other ones, including. You can go uh, to Burning Man and trade it on tape. <laughs> yeah, we'll re- we'll release each of them individually, like Pearl Jam did in the '90s yeah. for the bootlegs to try to go that way. But yeah, we're on Anchor. We are on Overcast. We are on. Uh, Radio Public, uh, we're on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, all kinds of different places. We'll put all of them up one day and we'll run through it. So I don't want to leave anybody out. But I also want to mention that we are on Twitter at Comingda. Uh, we will be billboarding this episode there and put up some live clips along the way. Every once in a while, Josh or Matt weigh in with a question. And we also are on YouTube. You can search for us at Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. And our YouTube format is we cut... Uh, reviews into album format so you would find album reviews as opposed to full episodes quibbies so. quibbies of the show quibbies there is that's an is that what it is like a that, cut that's a quick bite that was what the failed streaming network was that what's his face started uh, Elon oh, Musk. what's his no face <laughs> Elon Musk. Katzenberg yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg okay I was gonna say we should each take a, a more ridiculous guess about who Quibby could have been so he's it an no Elon Musk exists. that was a joke <laughs> I was gonna say Charles de Gaulle or something to make it even yeah, just pure absurdity. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, we have a big, big, big show this week, guys. The penultimate main feed show. No, no, no. We got we got two more after this, Josh. Two more main ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you jumped the gun a little bit there. That's okay though. We got one more cold listen hot take, and we have two more full episodes along the way. Although the last episode that we're gonna do is only two albums, and then the wrap up. So it's a little bit different in format. But I think it's Matt's turn this week to Billboard what the albums are we're covering. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. We're first gonna be gonna be starting off with uh, Gang of Four with their 1979 album Entertainment, which John will be handling in the first segment. And in the second segment, I'll be uh, talking about Talking Heads from uh, their 1979 album Fear of Music. It's the first time we're... Actually, it's the first time we're doing full episodes of all of these artists. Um, Mm -hmm. And Josh is going to round it out 
with the one of the big ones, one of the biggest ones ever, Fleetwood Max Rumors from 1977. And uh, yeah, that's, yeah, these are all, I'm excited to talk about all these. These are, these are all good albums. Yeah. I enjoyed doing the bio this week for mine. I'm sure you did. You you probably had the best bio. (laughs) I don't know what John's bio was. There was a lot. I I can't imagine there's more drama in Gang of Four than there was with Fleetwood Mac (laughs) around this time. There was not. I can tell you that just from having seen that behind the music, I can tell you that. But Matt, you know what I'm a little bit uh, concerned about? Uh, You asked me how I would handle Gang of Four this week. I have only really had experience with the Gang of Three. So Gang of (laughs) Mm. Four might be a little bit out of of my comfort zone. Amateur. The old human centipede. Seems seems a little crowded. (laughs) (laughs) Seems a little crowded, but (laughs) we'll see how we do. All right. Well, before we get into our reviews, guys, would any of you like to do any of our segments? Some cleaning, some Josh's movie quarter, perhaps some history this week. We can start wherever we... It's a... It's a freewheeling podcast this week, so just jump in and take the <laughs> Josh, reins. do you have anything? I got just another short uh, advertisement for the Criterion channel, and uh, they have Are they paying up, you or something? What's going on they here? They should. <laughs> <laughs> They're sending they, uh, him uh, odd 50s and 60s film noir for exactly. his gloves. <laughs> yeah. for, uh, for March, they put up a live in concert series of 12... Uh, music concerts and uh we talked about some of these before like monterey pops on there gimme shelter and and um shake uh otis at monterey but ones that we haven't seen that are intriguing are jazz on a summer's day the uh, watt stacks festival from 1973 which features isaac hayes who we've talked about the song remains the same the led zeppelin live concert performance in all its glory and a, a reggae doc from 1988 that features a lot of the artists that we've talked about. So I wanted to give that if people have the crossover interests like I do in watching those things. So Nice. Yep. Well, good pitch right there. So right on, Josh. Yep. I wish Criterion was paying us or something. But you <laughs> know what? It sounds like a great thing. So check them out. Although yep. Criterion in the future, if you want Josh's solid uh, advertisement there. I believe you can get a free trial so you can... Watch them all and then not pay. So the going the going rate is five five cents an episode and or each of us getting a diet Pepsi. I believe that's yep. our ad rate right now. Yep. And so. if anybody out there works for a Criterion, they can send Josh's uh, royalty check to Josh, courtesy Oregon, courtesy of Oregon. <laughs> Comey, it'll, just, it'll, it'll get there. Yeah, Josh at so. live.com. dot <laughs> it's there. So. All right, well, I got the feeling because Matt handed it off to Josh right there that Matt has some stuff of his own to do right I've now. Got, I, I like I, doing the this day in history. So I feel I'm like gonna, there's I'm a gonna, lot of good stuff today. I just have a feeling. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do some good stuff here. Good. Go for it. So this all right. So this is uh we're recording this on March 9th, so that's all this stuff comes from stuff that happened on March 9th. I love um, how you say that every week as I start every episode with what date it is, the night we're doing. Oh, I forget that you just do that. Yeah. Well, you know what? Some people don't listen to the very beginning. They just fast forward to when I start talking. Um, That's true. So 58 years ago, actually, and and speaking of, a little side note, is this the, this is the beginning of the Ides of March. So happy Ides oh, of March, everybody. Oh, the old Ides of March. The Ides of March. That's right. Not to be confused uh, with the Ides of November. One of our mm-hmm. classic bits on this yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So in 1964, 58 years ago, the Beatles filmed the last day of train scenes from the movie of A Hard, Hard Day's Night. And during their six days of filming aboard the moving train, uh, they traveled what they estimated to be a total of 2,500 miles 
on the rails while they did they filmed all of those scenes um has has there ever been a this day in history that did not start nope. with the beatles fact okay I'm telling you, is that gonna be this... a standard of it or is it more just a i'll keep giving you beatles facts as long as they keep feeding to me <laughs> okay. and it's like dude, it's like, and there's always like at least one or two sometimes there's like three i'm like all right settle down like this website loves the beatles but um uh, not the Beatles, 1968, although close, Bob Dylan, 54 years ago, going back all the way back to uh, season one, episode one of Combing the Stacks, Bob Dylan started a 10-week run at number one on the UK chart with John Wesley Harding. Remember we covered oh, that yeah. record, guys? Wow. Jeez. That was a number one album in the UK? What a bunch uh, of weirdness. It was, yes. <laughs> that yep. seems like literally decades ago when we covered <laughs> that does. album. But. I know, right? Um, so uh, 52 years ago, 1970... Black Sabbath uh, made their first uh, made their concert debut at the Roadhouse in London. Um, mm. Either of you, what was Black Sabbath's original band name? Do you remember? God, I'm it was the, the name the that another famous band had, right? If I remember correctly, I don't. Uh, maybe, but I, I, I think I don't I think know. They it was changed called, their name. But... They did change their name. They originally called Earth. Oh right, Earth. yeah. Okay. There was another band. Named was there Earth. another band called yeah. Earth? Okay. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one. 1991, which is 31 years ago, by the way. The Clash scored their only UK number one single with Should I Stay or Should I Go? Um, this was not an al- a song that was released in 1991, but it was made popular by a Levi's television commercial oh. that propelled that song to number one in the UK and the Clash- making it The Clash's only number one song. Uh, what uh, nine years after it was released? Um, I wonder, so, that's, yeah. an, that's an interesting question. I wonder when they started, when advertising started putting pop music into mm. songs as like a, you I know, in remember, the way that Apple did, you know, their campaigns and Gap and things like that. I, wonder. I can remember two very big early examples. I remember the Beatles and Rev, uh, Instant Karma was a big deal when they were going to Nike. Doing- we have Nike had it and Michael Jackson sold the rates and it was considered to be like a really, really big deal because it was sort of like we don't want it to be a part of it. That mm. that one always jumps to me. Um, yeah. And that's actually I'm trying to I think feel like the gap is the, kind of, the gap is probably solely responsible for like 10 number one hits. <laughs> it seemed like they the always gap? had some sort of the gap no. always had like songs or is it Old like, Navy? I can't remember. Or maybe yeah. the Old Navy. One of those two. Uh, who yeah, knows, they're the yeah. same. They're the same. Yeah. <laughs> they're I don't know. The I can I just add real quick that one of the things I hate right now is that the the people that are too cheap to buy the actual version of a bad '90s song, so they actually record a somehow even worse version of a '90s song that's not the original oh, artist. Like a cover. That is a standard for like like uh, pharmaceutical companies. I've found that they do um, that constantly. It used to be like 70s R&B songs that they would prostitute, but now we're starting to see like you know, a random 90s alternative mm. song that's that's in there. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Speaking of which, I um I saw the Batman recently and there's a Nirvana needle drop in that one and uh so that made me feel old cuz that is actual Nirvana. Yeah, something in the way is the song mm. and it's used throughout um to set the mood and uh Damn, can you explain what a heroin? needle drop is to me because i have oh, no i feel sure. like i should drop the needle that, on the record yeah. that's just the term when they put a, a song in a in a um in a movie okay gotcha yeah. josh knows all the terms he he has the best terms <laughs> yeah he does. <laughs> it's not my turn i didn't make it up <laughs> well 
Well, for us, you did, Josh. Um, And then I got a couple of sad notes here. Uh, Uh, We haven't covered this artist yet, but I had to include this because, again, it started. Will we be covering them? uh, Yeah, absolutely. 1997, 25 years ago, fellas, the notorious B.I.G. was gunned down and killed Mm. um, in L.A. Yep, 25 years. And another sad death of an artist we've already covered. 2007, 15 years ago, Brad Delp, lead singer of the U.S. rock band Boston, Boston, committed suicide. At his home in New Hampshire, uh, in, in the home of, uh, in the New Hampshire town of Atkinson, hmm. um, died by carbon monoxide poisoning. So, um, very sad. Oh, Great album. Yeah, as I um, mentioned on the Boston album, this is an odd story that we don't need to get into. But yeah, yeah. R.I.P. Mr. Uh, couple birthdays. There's two. One, I'm not sure if we talked. I think we talked about this guy, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Uh, Ornette Coleman. American jazz yes. saxophonist. Yep. He must have come in once or twice. Uh, he would have been 92 years old today. He, he was born in 1930, uh, but he did pass away from cardiac with uh, f- from a heart attack in uh, 2015. He and- holds a very interesting CTS trivia thing. If you'd like to know, he is. Oh. It, since we started in the 60s, yeah, he is the owner of the album that had the highest rating in a year that we did not cover. His album mm. was number two in 1960, and we covered number one in 1960, but we did not cover his album. Oh. And that is the highest album in any year that we will not cover on the uh, run of the show. I think he also put out an album in the 70s, right, that we haven't covered? Oh, Probably. He put out I mean, lots of albums, yeah. but I'm saying the one, like mm. having, I went yeah, and yeah. basically made a list of the highest album we didn't cover, and there's only one number two. The entire mm. run. It is an wow. Ornette Coleman album. Yep. And we never, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the 60s, was it 1962? We didn't yeah. cover any albums. We didn't from. cover any albums. Yeah. So I guess the number one that year would be the highest. Yeah. But yeah. And finally, uh, turning 80 years old today, born in 1942, the Velvet Underground's John Cale. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. Great. It's a, genetics are fascinating, aren't they? Because you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. think anybody from the Velvet Underground would have made it to 80, but. As we live and breathe. Happy birthday, John Cale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happy eight. Keep trucking on. Do it. Do 20 more. It's that Welsh consistency, right? He's Welsh, <laughs> yeah. if I remember. They got yeah. good water over there. Apparently. They, the air. The air, <laughs> the air is clean. <laughs> so. Air. Well, it can still hurt you. Or something well, like that, you, right? Matt. I'm not the lyrics guy. Something like that. I'm trying to tie it back in. I can't do as good a job as you can, though, John. I think you should stay away from lyrics. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a good segue because the band that has some very interesting lyrics is who we're going to be covering tonight. And that is the Gang of Four with Entertainment. Um, you heard in the montage Damaged Goods. And now you're going to hear a little bit of At Home, He's a Tourist. At home, he feels like a tourist. At home, he feels like a tourist. So that was At Home, He's a Tourist from the Gang of Four's debut album, Entertainment, with an exclamation point. Matt, 
I wrote a note to myself this week, so I didn't screw oh. up. Will you run the numbers? <laughs> I'd be glad to. So Entertainment from Gang of Four comes in at number 86 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums. Number five in 1979. Number 339 of all time. Uh, it is Gang of Four's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. And it also made Rolling Stone's list coming in at number 273. Yeah, I was going to say, it. Uh, it is much higher more highly regarded by critics than 87 in the decade. I could tell you that it, it made top tens in Pitchfork and NME and hmm. uh, I think just decade? outside of it in Rolling Stone for the decade of the 70s. Yes. Wow. So as a result, I was a little surprised to see it was that low at 87. Hmm. But I just, I guess you have to have a, you know, there's certain artists that were represented about 14 times, and I think that's probably what squeezed entertainment down. <laughs> Got to so. get all that Pink Floyd and Bowie in and all that stuff, John. Absolutely. Well, I'm not I'm not arguing with it, but I'm just thinking it, it doesn't line up with what everybody else said. So anyway, about the band. The band's origin story is that they started in high school when guitarist Andy Gill and vocalist John King met at Seven Oaks School in London. And Seven Oaks is all one word, which I thought was very interesting. It looks very odd when you see Seven Oaks all together, as yeah. if it, it, it almost looks like it's like a Native American name or something. And I realized, that, oh, no, it's Seven Oaks just run together. Uh, both were huge music lovers, and they were particularly partial to reggae, which I found kind of interesting because I didn't hear a ton of reggae. I did not either. In this album. Uh, I heard other things, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, they end up at Leeds University, uh, where they recruit fellow student Hugo Burnham on the drums. Uh, they have an initial basis to plays for two or three shows before they put an ad. They, the, one of the things I love, as I mentioned before, is mm. the 60s and 70s and the 80s where people just put ads out for bands and fine people that amazingly hit often. And that's how they found their bassist, Dave Allen. The ad was for a fast R&B band. Hmm. And that was uh, what brought Dave Allen into the fold. And they were then a four-piece. Not uh, R&B either. <laughs> they, well, it's, so here's, that's actually, you almost set the table for me right there, Josh, a little bit. Excellent. Because what became clear right away, I don't know. So this is mentioned often. I don't think they explicitly said this, but I think this was sort of the uh, the description that people would, would say about the band. So I was trying to figure out, like, did they describe this is what they were going for, or is this sort of the critic take of it? I think it's the critic take, but uh, the band is described as having a rhythm section that was patterned on James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic, mixed with uh, Gil playing a staccato version of a guitar uh, that has elements of what we now know as noise rock. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. King's lyrics were often about societal problems and larger narratives, and he was particularly uninterested in what he often referred to as sloganeering. And his songs are often described as anti-love songs. He does make quite a bit of conversation about how he thought bands that... I'm kind of paraphrasing his words here, so this isn't a direct quote, but he makes a lot of comments in my research about not loving that some bands wrote about like nothing but love and sex all the time. And he felt that was a little bit trite. And he said, you know, there's so much other stuff to cover in yeah. lyrically. Knock it off, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stuff. I think he, his, I think he directed it a little bit more. It's sort of like pop music was where he, he was directing his ire. So the band name comes from, I actually knew this, believe it or not, which I don't know what this says about me, but the band name came from a faction of the Chinese communist uh, <laughs> party who were part of the... How much do you guys know about the Cultural Revolution? Like what it was and stuff Just like that? Just Chairman Mao. 
Yeah, you know that like the Cultural Revolution is one of those things where the name is nothing like what actually happened because it basically was about like stamping out culture pretty much, right? That's kind of, yeah, it was, they had like the Great Leap Forward is another example of, uh, I wouldn't say irony. It was basically like how it played out and what they called it were remarkably not, it's not like one of those Japanese things where they come up with a really cute name for Mm -hmm. something that isn't necessarily untrue, but it's like super fun toy biz. You know, it's not like that. This is like the cultural revolution was kind of about, was kind of about getting back to like Chinese roots. Right. But it, it basically was also about like purging academics. Anyway, uh, all of this stuff is important because there were a group of four people in that who were particularly uh, powerful. They were cited for abuses during the cultural revolution and Andy Corrigan of the band, the Meekins M E K O N S. We will not cover them. Um, he was the person who actually named the group. Um, he was who gave them the name. So as you might imagine from a band named after a subsect of the Chinese communist party, uh, referencing the cultural revolution, the band was quite political in nature. There were some famous other political bands who love gang. There are lots of bands that were influenced by gang of four, but Bands like Rage Against the Machine and R.E.M. come up quite a bit as bands that were particularly um, totally fans of fans of them. And obviously they both have um, uh, Michael Stipe, maybe not so much in the lyrics as much as, you know, his personal stands. Um, mm-hmm. No pun intended. Um, were there and then Rage Against the Machine as well. Where the, yeah, you just got that, Matt, huh? Yep, <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, I'm perfect. On the uptick here. So anyway, uh, the Gang of Four name, uh, this album which I'll get into like how it was recorded, but this album had some themes with it, guys. So Matt is not a lyrics guy. I know that. <laughs> did you, Josh, did you catch some of the lyrics on this album? And did you catch any of the themes that are in here? Yes, I did. <laughs> what do you think some of the themes are? Because I can fill in the gaps or, or co-sign about whether or not you're right on some of those. Uh, class issues. Did that come up? Uh, they well, it's filtered Marxist theory, and of course, Marxist <laughs> theory is always about class issues. So yes, you're on the correct track right there. Yeah, I would just say dissatisfaction with the government, also. Yeah, well, how much do you know about the Situationist movement in France in the uh, late '50s through 1972? You familiar I, with I that? I know nothing about that. I would gotcha. say well, zero. It is a very, I cannot summarize this in any way that would be something concise. So I'm going to say the basics here. It was a, it was described as, and I thought this sounded oxymoronic, a libertarian Marxist movement, which, boy, when you have a collectivist with a libertarian, I'm like kind of, that's interesting. It sort of, it sort of was a critique of capitalism and uh, it was, a lot of it was intellectuals and artists in France and in other parts of Europe. And I, I please know that I am paraphrasing something that I'm sure has many, many documentaries and stuff built on it as I read about this. But it seemed to be sort of a, a quasi-Marxist movement that was a critique of society. Um, it was definitely left-wing but with a very individualistic streak there is a performative streak about it as well anyway that that was something 1968 it sort of peaked with a student-led revolution in france on campuses something about the year 1968 i think was on college campuses that it was catching the world right Mm -hmm. but by 1972 it had pretty much petered out um i don't know did you guys catch the album cover here it is an interesting album cover because it is mostly a red album cover, but then there are a series of pictures on the right-hand They're side. They're shaking hands. It's like a zoom in. So we're going to go ahead and just directly 
quote what's going on here because it's impossible for me. The cover, designed by King, shows the influence of Situationist International, a group that became famous during the Paris 68 student-led revolution. It depicts, an, and it puts in uh, quotes, Indian shaking hands with a, in quotes, cowboy in three heavily processed versions of the same image based on a still from one of the Winnetou films starring Lex Barker and Pierre Bryce which had once been popular in communist East Germany as critical narratives of capitalism. Oh, in case you're not lost already, guys, let me give you a little bit more. The faces are reduced to music. The faces are, well, because you have to, when you listen to the lyrics in this context, it does sort of make sense. So the faces are reduced to blobs of red and white. That is to stereotypical racial colors, you know, red and white. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. A text that. that wides around the images reads, the Indian smiles. He thinks that the cowboy is his friend. The cowboy smiles. He is glad the Indian is fooled. Now he can exploit him. So the idea of <laughs> exploitation is something that was covered thematically in the lyrics, Josh. So you kind of mm. nailed it right there. The back of the album, which we did not see, is also an interesting story, guys. It depicts a family whose father says, I spend most of our money on myself so that I can stay fat. While the mother and children declare, we're grateful for his leftovers. What do you think that is making a comment on, guys? capitalism <laughs> the patriarchy <laughs> i don't know if you caught that but yes it's there there also are um there also are texts that say things like the facts are presented neutrally so the public can make up its own mind and men act heroically to defend their country and the last one people are given what they want so definitely marxist feminist lenses all over this as well as that situationist lens so is this, that is hmm. a huge piece of the lyrical content of this album is this yeah. the most political band that we've talked about it seems like it based on what you're telling been talking uh about. in terms of the wide scope i would argue yes now yeah. you could argue that a lot of the reggae was political in terms yeah, of social true. and and you know there's there's songs like by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? You know, Ohio is a pretty political song, but it, yep. in terms of as a theme for an album, um, I, I mean, there's things like Fortunate Son, right? I'm just thinking different stuff. But yeah, but in terms of a full album, maybe. Yeah, I mean, this I seems this like be, yeah. the ethos of the band on some level, like the fact. Yeah, well, this is kind of like pretty political. Yeah. The class is pretty, I was about to say, the class is pretty political, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and they're they're from the same era. And that you guys keep setting me up perfectly. They first played together in 1977. And by June 1978, they had recorded their first uh, single, which was a three-song seven-inch. It was released on December 10th, 1978. And it contains the songs Damaged Goods, Love Like Anthrax, and Armalite Rifle. A second single, At Home, He's a Tourist, you've now heard bits and pieces of two of those four songs, was released in May 1979 and was banned by the BBC for lyrical reference to condoms, which now makes it two consecutive weeks where <laughs> prophylactics have been an Jeez. issue for the BBC. Uh, do you remember last week which other artist had a similar banning? For, because of condoms? Because oh. of procreation yeah. and condoms. It? They were kept also off the BBC and top of the pops. The it was, yes. It was the specials. Oh, the specials. Too, oh. it, too much, too young. You know, if you remember, that was a teenage pregnancy thing. So anyway, they were also kept off top of the pops because they refused to change the lyrics um, about uh, condoms to something. Were they okay with the drug wrong. use in that song, John? Or was it just the condoms that threw them off? They specifically referenced that they did not want mm. them to talk about the condoms, yes. So Entertainment is released in May 1979, and it's pretty much universally loved by critics. 
Um, the album, and I won't go into too much because you guys are going to talk about it, but the album is considered to be highly influential. Uh, it is considered to be an eclectic mix of funk rhythms, jagged shards of guitar is how it was described in one thing mm -hmm. that I read, and lyrics that were particularly political and often filtered through the Marxist theory. Uh, they sort of operate in a world in the punk scene, but also sort of outside of the punk scene. It's another thing that's mentioned quite a bit. So there we go. Hmm. That is a little overview of Gang of Four. Let's go with Matt. You know, Matt, tell me what you think of Entertainment Exclamation Point by Gang of Four. Yeah, I knew nothing of this band at, at all. None of the songs sounded familiar, never heard of the name. Um, so I was pretty intrigued. And yeah, I like this a lot. This was a very... Um, and this is an album that I liked the more that I listened to it, I would say. Uh, I think probably on the first listener to a lot of it kind of blended together, I found. Um, and, and and to some extent, it still does uh, after several listens afterwards. But um, and I think that's mainly one of the main sounds you get from this is that the guitar tone, which is kind of like I, I did a little bit of reading about this and I saw, saw the word metallic to describe the um, the guitar. And John, you just had a good, would you say something about shards of guitar or something like shards that? Shards of it? guitar, yes, which is would seem to be glass or metallic in its own. Yeah, it's got evoke, this yeah. very, there's very little, um, it's not much bass at all in the guitar. In the you know Not the bass guitar, but the guitar itself. It's a very mm. kind of tinny, um, kind of a sharp, you know, kind of, it's almost like in some places it almost sounds like the guitar's not even plugged into an amp really. It's just kind of yeah. like you're hearing him just play the strings on electric guitar without, with minimal amplification. But um, I like it. It's a very, it's a raw sound and it's a, at times it's like a, I don't want to say harsh, but it's aggressive, right? And the way that they play is aggressive because it's, again, more staccato guitar playing. Um, but it does also, a lot of it is kind of couched in, you know, different, uh, you know, really fast, upbeat, you know, uh, types types of beats, um, you know, some some cool melodies and, and great riffs. Uh, there's parts of this that reminded me of, like, stuff that the White Stripes would do in terms of the... Uh, kind of like the drumming the like the off the, the different drumming patterns particularly in something like ether um it, where they're they kind of just they have like a drum pattern going and then all of a sudden they go dun 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 and then they kind of like it throws you off a bit and it's just got this really cool yeah. guitar or a uh, drum beat that i liked um i thought that there were some cool bass parts in here particularly damaged goods is a great song i mean that's it that, that that's it, no wonder that that's the one that seems to get the most plays um but that's a very and there's a couple of different parts happening there kind of um switches gears a little bit and uh and I just I love that song and there's some cool like very cool bass lines going on there and um, part of this reminds me of The Clash and the uh, the Rage Against the Machine was interesting I didn't think of them but yeah that totally makes sense uh, I mm -hmm. mean this is probably a less aggressive version of that for sure but it's still but still there is some aggression there and some anger I mean these guys are it's a very it sounds like a very British album too with the the, uh, the accent of the of the the lead singer but um, there's not really any duds here it's just it's it's um I, like I said I think I liked it more as it as it went on um and yeah it was just a kind of surprise and I can see the influence here right because it's it was hard to kind of pinpoint exactly who this sounds like this is mm -hmm. another one that kind of I'm, I'm seeing sounds coming out in different different a variety of different bands and in that sense it, it does sound a little bit ahead of its time. But um, yeah, big uh, big thumbs up on an album that I had knew knew nothing about, and I you know I'm, that's, I'm surprised that I just never heard of them before. So uh, I I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, this album was fantastic. Uh, mm. Again, I didn't know the band, and uh, the first time through, I was like, okay, this was an, an album that grew on me uh, the more I listened to it, and then I like started really getting into it. Uh, it it kind of comes out right out of the gate with Ether, which is such like a that noise rock influence is there, but they do it so well and it's not like it's kind of like a more tempered version of that I, I don't know I found I found it more I found it easier to listen to than some of the noise rock that comes later on um, you know from from this or you know as the genre evolves but uh, they they you know despite all the political lyrics and you can get some of that just from reading the song titles too uh, you know like not great men or guns before butter things like that I mean they're they're kind of they're not trying to hide anything, but um, the music for me is really what what attracted me to this album. The singer's voice is really great. I thought the drums were really fantastic on this. They're kind of mixed in a way that I really wanted to like air drum with them, or I could like see where the fills were coming. Or once I knew the album a little bit, I really responded to the energy that the drums brought to it. I thought it complemented the guitar. I normally would not. I, I agree that the guitar, the guitar is kind of the most jarring piece of the band, but it really complements the the um, the other aspects of the album. I think the rhythm section in general is probably really strong. With if, if they're having a funk background, like you say, that that makes sense because they're just. I, I mean, I guess the testament to any good band is how s- strong their rhythm section is because they're the foundation kind of for everything that they do, and that allows the guitar to go all over the place when there's such a, like a steady undergrowth. Um, the singer's voice is really good and complements uh, everything, and there's just there is no bad songs on here. I thought Damaged Goods was also. Um, Great. I thought I found that Essence Rare was an awesome song later on in the track and Ether at the beginning was great. I hear, you know, we we talked a few weeks ago about the guitar tone from one album being everywhere that we couldn't put our finger on. But I feel like this too also carries over to later bands like The Strokes and or something like Nirvana or um, they... The way... Kurt Cobain was a big fan in case you're wondering. I can imagine so. And something about the way the guitar is tuned like matt said or or just the way it's played is i feel like something that people really caught, uh, grabbed onto glommed onto and yeah there were parts them. of the guitar i actually felt that were kind of almost like i forget exactly what song it was but or what, what songs they were but it's almost like a, like a free jazz like it kind of goes off off kilter a little bit they kind of start doing their own thing and it's kind of on its own beat or whatever. So it's, mm-hmm. I, I got a sense of like, this is a little free jazzy kind of guitar. That's, you know, that's kind of going on. They, I think they do that throughout too. They, mm. the guitar does not go where you expect it to go. Right. Or, you know, like I said, the rhythm section is playing one thing and then it's going like all these other directions, but then comes back. Um, I, I like the dueling vocals on ether as well. It's kind of like a call and response thing. Like the lead singer says something and then the, the backing singer responds to it um, or, or adds something to it. And yeah, this was just a real surprise to me. And um, yeah, I really liked it. It, I feel like it should be rated higher on the best ever albums list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad that, it, you know, we, I say this or we've said this before. It's rare that we haven't heard of a band completely. Usually it's in the cold listen hot takes that those bands are discovered, but I'm glad this one is 
getting the respect. I feel like I should champion it more as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with something you guys said, which is this album, as much as any we've listened to in the 70s, rewards multiple listens. Um, I kind of have a process of how I go. The first time I sort of listened to it loose and I just, I don't really write anything down. I just kind of take it in. And that one's built more on like what pops out to me. Is it the music? Is the, are the lyrics undeniable? Mm-hmm. Is there something that affects me positively, negatively along the way? But I'm not really making a judgment as much as what are my initial sort of almost sensory mm-hmm. um, things. So in that listen, I was kind of overwhelmed by, as Matt said, it's that, that shardy, like, glass shardy sort of guitar that I always can hear is like a noise rock tone kind of. And Matt, you did a great mm-hmm. job explaining it the, without having much of a bass tone at all in the guitar. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the bass pops as well. Yep. Uh, the drums didn't come to me quite as quick. Like I knew they were there, but they, they blended in with the rith- as a rhythm section to me more so than individual pieces. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was each time I listened, um, John King's voice became more nuanced to me the first time i listened to it it sort of blended over it Mm -hmm. sort of it just sounded the same each time and i wouldn't say he varies it a lot but i learned to appreciate it within the greater context with other listens um another thing that popped out quickly was the funk aspect Mm -hmm. um i i'm surprised you guys didn't go there because to me that was something that popped out quite a bit so that was the initial one now the second time i listen i sort of take notes you know what what do I notice that I want to talk about on the show? But also that's where I start to say, well, what does this sound like that we've covered or I'm aware of? And the two things that I wrote down quickly were Block Party and Liars. To I did post, think of Block Party. I forgot about that. Bands, yes. But like I was like, Block Party, like the, the, yes. they're like a, a 2000s version of this. Because uh, yes. they have the same sort of formula, even with the dueling vocals at times and stuff like that. And the, voc- and, and the vocals of the the, the, the Britishness of the vocals kind of come out in exactly. as well. Yep. And right. so, so for too. those that, that know Block Party, there, I mean, th- there's a lot of influences of a lot of people, so I don't want to draw, but that if you sort of have the sound of what Block Party sounds like, there are a lot of the same elements in this album that you would have in Block Party. Uh, the fact that this was recorded in 79, there just continues to be, I'm, I'm amazed, I think, at post-punk as, as a genre. I think because these albums feel like they're from the future to some degree. Would you guys agree? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like whether it be television or magazine or suicide, like these bands, it's very difficult to place them in the late seventies because, and another thing I realized guys was that these bands, these seventies bands are so seminal to the music that we grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's and you start to realize realistically the DNA of the stuff that we listened to in the 90s and 2000s is so much more closely tied to this late 70s and I wonder if when we get to the 80s we're going to see the same thing it is much more tied than sort of the 60s stuff we covered oh, absolutely. which is big, which yes. is, bi- which is yes. big names and we're aware of it but the by the time you know 90s and 2000s stuff was was hitting you really realize by taking a journey how much the 70s stuff influenced that, right? Right. And this, you can see bits and pieces of where this came from, from the 60s, but really it's it's easier to understand as an influence to 
future stuff than it is to backwards look. And I think that's what's kind of amazing to me about post-punk. It's kind of like Krautrock and that it doesn't really seem to be as closely tied to of the past as other music does. Um, but yeah, and by the I listened to it a third time actually, which is not always something that I do. But by the third time I was listening to it, I was picking at that point I really locked in on the lyrics because I was seeing stuff that was interesting to me um, in the earlier listens and hearing stuff, and I really focused on that. And yeah, this is a great lyrical album. Mm-hmm. I uh, it's a I hate to use this term because I it's so pompous, but it's a very um, it's very literate lyrics. And what I like about it is it's not like literate up your ass lyric. You know what I mean? It's like, it's literate in terms of an observational way and tying stuff in and not just, Oh, look how smart I am. I know about this. Um, I just feel they really felt, they really found a nice lane of writing meaningful lyrics that weren't trite. And I know they were going for that. And I, I thought they really succeeded on that front. There's some, some really, really good, lines which maybe I'll, I'll quote a little bit later um but i want to give a chance for you guys to kick back in as well but um yeah i um really like this album um i agree i think just for the influence alone of so many bands that i liked um it, it has to, it should be listened to by anyone that enjoyed alt rock or in the 80s or 90s mm. it was interesting because the third time i listened i had started to do my research by that point i didn't plan on going back a third time and I read an all music review where they said, you know, it influenced so much stuff for better or worse. And they mentioned the uh, fact that uh, there's an influence in like rap metal. And I was like, really? Huh. And then, but then when I listened, I know yeah, what they're going for because there is, there is, and I know F- they mentioned also that Flea said they were the single most important influence. And if you listen in that context, yeah. you do get it. You know, you don't get it initially, right? And and you kind of almost have to listen to it multiple times God. and even to some degree be listening to it, but it's there. And I heard it the first time around the funk, but then sort of it you think to yourself, how could rap metal really? But then you yep. hear, and you're like, it's not a direct like correlation, but yeah, you get it. You know, and, and the line was uh, germs of influence can be found by rap metal groups that are not in touch enough with their ancestry enough to even realize it, which yeah. <laughs> I thought was an interesting way to put it. And, uh, and gotta, it sounds like Matt, you know what I'm, I, I'm, ta- I got, I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking I got to start maybe making more notes or whatever. Cause a lot of times I listen to these things and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm have my headphones and I'm walking my dog, whatever. And I just, ideas come to my head and then they flutter away. Cause mm. I don't know. I don't remember stuff as much as I could anyway, but, but the red hot chili peppers stood out to me as well. Like a, a couple of points. I'm like, this kind of got a little bit of a chili peppers vibe in a certain way. Same thing with black party. Um, the, the white stripe stood out to me. I, that's one that stuck with me, but yeah, it's funny you say that because I can, I didn't think of the, the rap metal, but I mean, the chili peppers kind of, they're, they're forerunners of that. You know, if you think about it, what, what came mm-hmm. later on. So, uh, so yeah, I absolutely see that. That's very, I, that's, that's spot on. Well, you can steal my process, Matt, if you want. <laughs> Maybe I will, John. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I go. will. Yeah. yeah. It's all, all, like you said, a lot of these bands from the seventies, I think that's why I'm responding to it so much like the 60s is kind of almost like a infancy for a lot of the genres that we listen to sure. and this is the the point where the like tree matures and like starts to split mm-hmm. and then like we've known all the branches but we haven't seen like where it all comes from and yeah there's it's definitely expanding you know yeah. i mean the stuff there was stuff in the set in the 60s that was like oh this is different you know but it was still nowhere near to what you're getting like once you hit like the 
the mid mid seventies, it's really starting to kind of take root in a variety of different areas. And that's mm-hmm. why, and that's what you're getting here, right? You're getting that splinter and it makes a lot of sense that this is, this is more of the roots of the stuff that we listen to as kids and, and even today to by, you know, to an extent as well, but it's going to continue to get like that too, which is, which is, is kind of cool. Is it fair to say the energy from the late seventies travels in a more modern way, I think, than the 60s energy. I don't know why, because it's it's 40-some years ago, but it's still, this stuff still sounds vibrant to me. And I was thinking, is that Mm. because it influenced the stuff I listened to? But I think if you put this on to a modern teenager and put 60s stuff in, they'd hear the 60s stuff is old and the 70s stuff is interesting. I would think so. Does that make sense? The 60s stuff, even the stuff that... a lot of the 60s stuff still just it's it, well, while I love it it still sounds very much of its time yeah um and this like I, there's it's almost and there's like 70 every week. stuff that says of its time true too, but very, this is no, not very it. True. this post punk stuff is not it but it's i almost want to say that like i don't know how many weeks going but it just seems like every week there's at least one album that we listen to where one of us just goes this just either sounds ahead of its time or it doesn't sound dated or it doesn't sound like i wouldn't have guessed that this was, this was from the 70s um yeah. and it just seems like we've been doing that for a lot for a long time now which makes it does i don't want to take anything away from that because i still think even though that there's a, maybe a lot of bands or more bands than I would have originally thought that were doing that, it still is pretty impressive. And it's a really cool thing to, to see and to hear, especially a band like this, which at least with television, I had heard of them and I knew a little bit of them. I knew nothing of these guys. Oh, that was the guitar tone band that I was referring to yeah. that we had talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at and least I, I had heard of that. This is like, wait, who, yeah. what? Like, we, you know, we kind of have to admit that like we kept saying that. And really do we just have to say that a lot of good post-punk doesn't mm. necessarily sound ahead of its time. It's just a really good time. I think that's what I've come to realize. And it's, it's yeah. maybe it's not like when you listen to the Stooges or that early Zeppelin album, right? Where you're like, this is 10 years ahead. And it, there's nothing, there's no other part of the genre that or the Velvet Underground, right? There's no mm. other surrounding genre that sounds like that. I think what I thought was as we start listening to these bands, Ooh, they sound ahead of their time too. But then you realize when there's a whole genre built around this, yeah, you know, it's just maybe it's when post-punk is where we all sort of recognize a shift into modernity mm-hmm. that um, is familiar to us. Well, and dare I say, I mean, this is something that could be considered timeless. You yeah. know, is I mean, like if you're into good- genre. If you're into alternative rock or what we would call indie rock or alternative rock, I think yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't listen to rock, I don't know because you might say, "Oh, that guitar rock stuff," you know, mm-hmm. is of its time. You know, but yeah, if you're into like indie rock and alt rock to this day, you know, because even though yeah, because even though rock isn't as nearly as viable a, a genre as it was, you know, back in the '70s, if you're into rock, t- yeah, like you said, if you're into rock today and somebody played this for you, like. I could have, you could have fooled me. This could have been an album that came out last week. Like, yeah, well, oh, this... you know another band? I just thought of it. Parquet Courts was another mm. band that I was reminded of when I heard this. Kind of that minimal, because it's got that minimalist, yep. um, garage rock kind of tone. And Parquet Courts, even though I think they're American, but they, I, I found that they, they sounded similar to them as well. And that's well, and a very it... recent band. Well, relatively recent band anyway. Well, it also weaves into enough genres that it could exist in this world too. Because a lot of what... The, sh- the remnants of rock are right is a uh, mix with something mm-hmm. that has more credibility whether it's you know uh, hip-hop or funk or you know what i'm saying or latin music you know this, the things that bring in those elements back in the day sound more modern i think as well because that's 
you very rarely see like a standalone three or four piece band anymore. Yeah. If you're sort of doing, you know, and that's where I think things like adding in some of the funk, adding in a little bit of uh, the tone, the noise rock, it makes it seem a little bit more of a different era. Yeah. Maybe post-punk so. in of itself is just more resistant to, to the trends. For some reason, maybe that genre as a whole just carries through. I wonder if if we're gonna feel the same way in the '80s when we get when we cover some. That's what I'm very curious about because we're gonna go into all kinds of other uh, right. genres, and I'll be interesting. It's also gonna be interesting hearing them after basically traveling. I keep saying this over and over, but traveling the walk where we've heard all of this stuff that leads up to it by accident we're stumbling into through lines i think that we probably wouldn't have been smart enough on our own to figure out but now there's three of us you know talking this stuff out it's like hmm how about that i get that you know stuff like that so yeah high recommend for me Mm -hmm. i like this one quite a bit same agreed all right well we are we've been on a run recently of just loving albums and matt let's see if we continue the streak i love albums and i love love like stevie wonder (laughs) Like Stevie, I love, love, yeah. love. I love, love, love. Um, all right, so Talking Heads, this is Fear of Music coming in at number 59 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, number four in 1979, number 249 of all in all of all of time. And I don't believe it made Rolling Stones list. I, I took a look. I did not see it on there. So I'm going to go with no to Rolling Stones mm-hmm. list. Um, okay. It is Talking Heads' second highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. All right, so um, in the opening montage, you heard a clip from uh, Heaven. Actually, I think I inverted that, but whatever. Well, the opening montage, you heard Heaven, and now you're going to hear a clip from Life During Wartime. That's pretty apropos, isn't it? Life during wartime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so Fear of Music. So this album was recorded uh, on, I think it was basically two days, April 22nd and May 6th, 1979, released on August 3rd, 1979. It's the third album by Talking Heads, and it's their second album with Brian Eno as a co-producer. The uh, record reached number 21 in the United States and 33 in the UK, so it did pretty well. It had three singles, including Life During Wartime, I, Zimbra, and Cities. And um, this is the, really the third time we've been talking about Talking Heads. We've, we've covered their debut album, Talking Heads 77. And what is it? More songs about food. Buildings, buildings and, and, food. and food. Buildings and food. There you go. So we do those in cold listens. When people are so much involved in our show, like yeah. Brian Eno, do we need to start giving them, like, a sound when their name is invoked for the first time. Like, Josh, you could do I, that Windows chime. Didn't Brian, you know, compose the Windows chime? Yeah, that's <laughs> actually a fantastic idea right there. I was thinking like, for some reason, when I think of like David Bowie, I think at the beginning of Sound and Vision, like, like that would be the yeah. sound. Like we talk Bowie. The Windows chime is brilliant, Matt. I just yeah. got to give you all the credit yeah, in the world Bowie's for been, that. 
He's all over the place. I mean, yeah, he really is all over the place. Not Bowie, including in space. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brian Eno's here again, and I think he does their next album. He's in Remain in Light as well, which we're going to cover. That's from uh, 1980. Matt, what's the number one highest rated album of theirs? Oh, it's Remain in Light, and I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty universally uh, agreed upon uh, statistic there. That that's their that's considered their best album. It seemed like Uh, this album. Not to jump we'll decide. Brian was also highly rated, though. Yeah, I mean, this is number yeah. two, um, but I've seen other places like, uh, you know, more songs about, I don't know, cities and, I don't know, I can't Buildings remember that, but uh, <laughs> that, was on Ro- that was on Rolling Stone's list and this okay. wasn't, you know, gotcha. so uh, anyway. Um, so a little history on the Talking Heads. They were formed in 1973 by David Byrne and Chris France, uh, who were both students who we talked, I think we talked about this before, at the Rhode Island School of Design, mm-hmm. also known as RISD. And originally they were called the Artistics. And at the time, France's girlfriend, Tina Weymouth, would provide transportation for the band, driving from place to place. Um, and uh, they eventually, about, about, after about a year, they, they, uh, they moved to New York City, uh, decided to ditch the, uh, wrist, uh, the Artistics name and start to try to form another band. They couldn't find a bassist, so they had Weymouth join as the bass player, but not, be, not before David Byrne had, um, uh, had her audition three separate times to make sure <laughs> that she could make the cut. Oh, artists. Yeah. So they played their That's first gig. That's just comical to me on so many levels, which I'll <laughs> talk to you about later. But not Chris. We need to have her come in and play again. I, I need. To, I need to do it again. Yeah. Um, so they play their first gig as Talking Heads, opening for the Ramones at CBGB on June fifth, nineteen seventy-five. Um, yeah. That Name had to checked. be a cool show to see. Imagine that. Yeah, That'd have been a fun Name show. Name checked in this album too, CBGBs. Yes. Um, One, two. That's, sorry. <laughs> That's my uh, Ramon soundbite right yeah. there. One, two, three, four. The, uh, the name Talking Heads came from an issue of TV Guide, which explained the term that was used by TV studios to describe a head and shoulder shot of a person talking. Um, mm. And the Correct. band was... What's that? Correct. I said, yep, that's Music. a TV oh. term. Yep. <laughs> TV term, yep. Uh, the band was signed to Sire Records in November of 76, and in March of 1977, they added guitarist and keyboardist Jerry Harrison, who was formerly a member of what band? The Modern Lovers? You got it. Yep, Modern Lovers. And uh, was David Robinson, not the basketball player from the Modern Lovers, went on to play with the Cars. So <laughs> I think we made that joke in the Cars we episode. Did. Oh. I, was, yeah. I was a recall back to that, yes. So they, uh, they released their first album, Talking Head 77, in, ni- in September of 1977, and that included their first charting single, Psycho Killer, which I'm sure many people have heard of many times before. Mm-hmm. And later on that year, uh, Weymouth and France actually get, get married, and I think they're still married to this day. I, I didn't see anything about them getting divorced, nice. so uh, they're, they're keeping it going. A rare success story in the music world. Seriously. And they're still alive, so even yeah. rarer. Yeah. Did he make her audition for the marriage too? Or <laughs> I don't think he's the one with the issue. It's just David Byrne. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so they teamed up for their second album with Brian, you know. Uh, with more, more songs about buildings and food. And that's the album that c- concluded a cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River. And that's what gave the band their first top 30 hit. 
But after the success of that song, it wasn't all great. The band was probably particularly David Byrne was uh, a little concerned that uh, they might be kind of becoming a, a singles act and they really didn't want to do that. They wanted to be more of an album oriented or known for more than just having songs on the radio. So um, they wanted to expand upon what they called their subtly disguised disco rhythms that were present present in, their, in, in more songs about buildings and food. And uh, they wanted to make those sounds a little bit more prominent in the mixes of the new songs that they would do on this record. The, uh, the initial studio recordings did not go too well, and they ended up recording most of these songs in Weymouth and Fran's uh, uh, apartment loft. Hmm. Uh, they parked a van outside of the loft. They ran cables up through the window of the, uh, of the, uh, of the loft. And they recorded in their apartment. If you look that up in Wikipedia, where was it recorded? Chris Franz and Tina Tina Weymouth's apartment loft. So there you go. <laughs> and of course, Brian Eno was instrumental in helping to create the sound of the record, which um, I don't know were, about you guys, but I, I definitely heard that in several songs. As well. Were there oblique strategies employed for this album? Or <laughs> I no? didn't see anything about oblique strategies, but uh, God, there had to be. I there feel like David Byrne would really respond to oblique strategies. <laughs> <laughs> or not. One of the, it's either one or the other. I'm yeah, not sure. That's a good point. Maybe it depended on the oblique strategy that they were using. Yeah. I mean, one could argue it's successful either way if you don't go with it. <laughs> that's true. It creates an angry response <laughs> yeah. the other way. Yeah. And an energy. Brian, you know, man, he was a genius. Uh, so the songs in this record were a little bit more of a dystopian nature than the previous records. Uh, Weymouth was a bit skeptical of this, but Byrne kind of started asserting his, his role a little bit more and, uh, and he, you know, convinced her and the other band that this was the way to go. Uh, Jamie, J- Harrison did the cover artwork, which is mainly black with some texture to make it look like a diamond plate metal flooring. Hmm. Um, and he also came up with the na- the, the title of the album, um, but he, he, which he, which he admitted was kind of ludicrous. Um, but he also f- felt that it fit with the album's themes and reflected the stress and the pressure that the band felt while they were making the record itself. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, there is a good description here. Fear of Music is largely built on an eclectic mix of disco rhythms, cinematic soundscapes, and conventional rock elements. Um, and then there was this description or uh, uh, analysis from John Perales from Rolling Stone. Um, he said that uh, Fear of Music is often deliberately brilliantly disorienting. Like, to, like its black corrugated packaging, which resembles a manhole cover. The album is foreboding, inescapably urban, and obsessed with texture. So um, that's about it. There's not a ton of interesting facts I found about this record, but um, it's pretty highly regarded. And I think we are going to start with uh, Josh is going to have to go this time. Josh, what did you think of uh, Fear of Music? Well, some of the things you said really struck a chord with me. Uh, my initial listen was through what this didn't grab me in the way that the first two albums did. But the more I listened to it, the more I liked it to the point where I was playing songs on repeat, individual songs on repeat, because I liked things about them so much, like the track Animals specifically. I just really, that chorus just really fucking grabbed me for whatever reason. Hmm. I feel like on some level, this is like, more complex talking heads like a level up more advanced studies talking heads and i think that's what took me a while to get into it there it is like complex and and disorienting at first it 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 and you said uh you mentioned the stress and um recording the album i i yep. felt that you know after you said that i can hear that in the album it it felt frantic at times it felt aggressive there's the guitar is kind of 
in different places. And I think Eno really has played a role <laughs> in the, I think Eno more than the first two albums, I can see that influence in, you know, because he goes like real abstract on, you know, you know, making airport sounds and stuff that he can take it in a lot of directions. And I feel like he's taken them, stretched them in this album. Um, mm-hmm. There's unconventional rhythms again on this. You know, there there is that hallmark of the band that carries through here. I feel like the guitar is more prominent on this album, maybe. And just overall, it's a more uh, complex album. I still really liked it. Um, I, it's hard to imagine them being a singles band because <laughs> their singles yeah. are not like really earworms necessarily. I mean, they're all very different and catchy, but, but uh, the album as a whole is very... Uh, it works together so well i feel like um what else the the keyboards there's some keyboard sound effects and weird stuff and uh, kind of vocal distortions that are played throughout the album like on mind and um it, it also feels like some of this has or could be sampled by rap artists especially <laughs> um, it just seems like ripe for for cherry picking different things from it. Um, the percussion again is great. Uh, I I think there's congos on Izimbra. They still have that kind of marching tone as well, even though they're unconventional rhythms. It's just dancey um, in different parts, and I, mean, I think overall I need to listen to it more. I mean, I listen mm. to this album more than I normally do for albums, and I still feel like I don't. I'm just starting to kind of grasp it. Um, it is kind of abrasive at times. That was how I felt initially listening to it. But then I got into its rhythms and I think I responded more on something like Memories Can't Wait. That really kind of affected me. And and again, like on electric guitar and drugs, uh, the final <laughs> tracks, those are kind of out there as well. This is not... Um, I can see this not appealing to everyone, I guess, ultimately. But um, I, th- I feel like there is stuff here. Uh, it's ripe for discovery and kind of meditating on it. And I mean, we've I've liked all the Talking Heads albums so far that we listened to. So I'm three for three on this, ultimately. This is definitely a, probably like a more advanced version of Talking Heads. But I, I like what they're bringing to the table. And I like what Eno gave them as well. Yeah, um, I this was an interesting uh, collection of thoughts for me as I was listening to this. Um, some notes I wanted to. I, I'll, Josh said some stuff I agree with, but I'll, I'll bring up some things that he didn't bring up. And Matt, you can certainly jump in too because I don't want to steal too much of your thunder. But the danceability of this album really popped out. Uh, you can mm-hmm. see kind of when they break off to do the Tom Tom Club, you can kind of see the beginning mm-hmm. of the elements of where they were going with that because it fits in the context of 1979 78 you know the disco it's it's not disco but it could exist in a club that played disco which i think mm-hmm. is interesting because the talking heads are certainly not a disco band but it's sort of a testament to them that that they they could have a danceable album that could theoretically play in the same venue um i continue to be impressed by the evolution of David Byrne's vocals and singing going from almost overpowering in Talking Heads 77 to the point where I sort of was like, if I could just excise that, this album would be better. 
to in uh, more songs about buildings and food. I said it was kind of pushed to the back a little bit, and it worked for me. This the and this could be the production. This could also be I think David Byrne figuring out how to integrate himself more. The the David Byrne experience was the most pleasant of the three albums so far. I actually hmm. enjoyed the way he sang and his contribution. He wasn't as um, as jarring to me as he was on some of the other albums. He fit mm -hmm. into the music more. I think that's another observation I had is Eno has a... Re I don't know if I could describe why I know what a Brian Eno album sounds like, but there is a feel to a Brian Eno album where you're yeah. like, this feels like an album that could have been produced by Brian Eno. And not just the albums we've covered so far, but knowing you know later the stuff he did for U2 and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, even that Coldplay album, right? He did, there is just sort of a, like a hallmark to his sound. And I think one of the things is he is able to make art rock and interesting sound choices not sound as avant-garde as they are in some ways. Mm -hmm. He's able to like congeal a sound that could probably be inaccessible into a kind of shockingly accessible um, palette. I, I, David Bowie has that gift too. That's why I'm not surprised those two spent so much time yeah. together because they both kind of have that gift of, of you know, I, I saw it with Bowie when he was doing um, like the Iggy Pop stuff. You know, he, he cut all the... He kept the E-Pop's energy, but he kept, but he kept it cleaner than the rawness of the earlier stuff. Um, that was something here. I felt that he he took the Talking Heads, and they they didn't get less interesting than they were when they were sort of more art rocky. And I mean, they weren't avant garde because they always had hooks and pop sensibility. But he was able to really refine that. Um, and and that's another thing I put. This is a this is a very hooky album for the Talking Heads. It's got more identifiable hooks both lyrically and musically um the album grew i felt i felt the album got better as it went along at the beginning like you josh it wasn't quite grabbing me but then mm -hmm. as the album went on i started to connect and, and when i re-listened to it i found bits and pieces i keep i want to keep going back to this and we we i talked about this in an earlier episode uh the bass is just so good on these albums and that's why it's so funny to me that it's <laughs> like oh because like it pops it's it's really the thing I notice in these Talking Heads albums is I really like the bass lines. They're, I said before, tasty bass lines, but mm -hmm. they are. They're tasty bass lines that I immediately connect to. And we're going to do another album in the next one that has a similar vibe, vibe that I'll talk about. But I just, I really like the bass choices. And I like the fact that I could listen to the bass on its own and it could be a, a, a prominent piece of it, but also it doesn't overpower it in the way that it screams listen to my bass. It's just subtle enough to be there, but not so um, inconsequential that it doesn't add quite a bit um, to the album. So yeah, yeah I, I definitely like the, I like all the Talking Heads albums in different ways. I don't know if I've gotten the perfect Talking Heads album yet. And Matt, we'll see if we keep building because I, I feel like each of these albums is, is like 80% of the puzzle of what I want the perfect Talking Heads album to sound like. And if you shove sort of all of them together, it probably is 100%. But I'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if I find that album that's the 100%. But yeah, this is an easy recommend. I like this album a lot. 
Well, if it's if if you're in line with what everybody else is in line with, and remain in light would 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 it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. Put Have a, I ever put, been in line with, no. with everybody else? Yes, it will say no, but that's the one that's supposed to be it. So um, so I like this album. I will. I I was. I I kind of agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I was. I think disappointment was a word that kind of came up, especially early on in the week, because I went into this going I. I had high expectations and I don't, I can't necessarily say that they were met with this. Cause this, I, I think that this of the three, it seems like it's the more, more challenging of the three in terms yeah. of to listening. I think that they're definitely, you know, that, that whole idea that they're trying to, I don't know, be, be more arty or like be more, uh, you know, this is kind of a, the, the theme of this being more dystopian. I think you definitely can kind of fear, feel that a little bit more. I, I, I mean, John, you're saying that there's, there's, there's hooks in here and yeah, there are, but it's definitely like, it's a less poppy album to me at the same, by the same tone that, than, than the other two seem to be. And I, I know that that was partially, you know, something that they were trying to do is trying to expand, which I certainly appreciate, but yeah, I think I, I might need some more listens with listens to this. Um, but there are some songs in here like life during wartime is a, that's a, that's a great song. I mean, that's, and, and you're right, John, it's very, there's many danceable type things on here there. And this is, you can kind of hear some of the disco. I don't think disco would have been a word that I would have said yeah. unless I read him say that. But after I read him seeing, you know, read him saying that, I see what he's talking about. Like, I don't, you know, disco, not necessarily, but definitely dance music. Like I Zimbra is another one that that's kind of stands out. It's got this, like, yeah. and that's based on African, you know, beats and drums mm -hmm. and stuff like that, which, which burn was very much into around this time. Um, well, so not uh, just around this time. Well, yeah. <laughs> In life. Enough. Yes, exactly. He's doing the same stuff now. That's true. Um, Cities, very, another song that's kind of like that. And I actually, I knew that that's a song that Fish covers in their live set. So oh. I didn't, I was like, oh, this is a talking head song. <laughs> another <And>, Matt Staple. <laughs> yep. And so, and, and I will say that their version's very different. It's much, it's slowed down. So I, 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 I yeah. didn't know that the original version was like that upbeat and fast. So it was very, it's and a 47 nice, minutes long. But. Yeah. Yes. 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 I think yes, it can be. I think in "Stop Making Sense." Also, I heard that, and it's slowed down too. In that, okay. Um, or I've heard a version that's slowed down somewhere. I I yeah. don't remember it being as fast as it. Fish is definitely does it. I love fish. It's a cool groove. It's 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 different, but um, yeah. but it was kind of cool hearing this, and that's kind of like this. That's a weird. That's it's it's weird to call that a dance song, but it kind of is if you really listen to the the, the beats and stuff like that. That's how yeah. you can cut. You can dance to that. You know. Um, and then you've got a song like Heaven, which seems very out of place here. It's like the only real traditional song, I think, that that's just a basic kind of ballad almost. Um, yeah. And uh, it's like a, more of a traditional st uh, structure. So, um, you know, so but but I like that. It was a little bit of a palate cleanser towards the end. The song Drugs absolutely sounds like Brian Eno. It's like, holy crap. It's just that could have fallen on that. Was it what was the Brian Eno album that we covered? The Green the Couple. Another um, green world. Another, another green fun. world. That seems here like come the warm they, jets. Yeah, yeah. They, another green world. That was the one that was a little bit more. Um, I don't know, electronic or whatever. That mm -hmm. didn't have a whole lot of lyrics. Kind of nature that, feel, I would say, is how I would describe that one. Yeah, I it's think I think I think drugs could have fit right on there. So, um, you know, and then there's stuff like I. There's elements of songs like animals and memories can't wait and. Um, you know, air that, that I like. And then there's other parts that it's like, ah, oh, he's kind of, it's a little, it's a little jarring. It's a little too, mm -hmm. too outside the lines sometimes for me. So it's, I can't say that I love this record. Uh, it's, it's definitely interesting. And I think, it, I think I can 
you know, just even only listening to the other albums, you know, once, I think I listened, listened once or twice, uh, you can see them branching out, um, which I like. I, I, I don't know if I would say I would like this better than the other two, um, but maybe I need to listen to this more. So I'm, I'm a thumbs up on it. I mean, Talking Heads are, you know, are, are, are a very creative band, very influential. They, they're interesting, right? You're not going to get bored listening to a Talking Heads album. Um, no. And so I'm glad I got to listen to this. But I would say a little bit, little bit of a disappointment because I was just so high on the last two. And I was like, oh, man, now it's really going to get good. And, you know, even like to this next yeah. level. And it didn't really get there for me. So in that sense, it was a little bit of a disappointment. But still a good album, I would say. I, I didn't find this album that jarring, guys. I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were parts that were not as pop-centered, maybe, as we'd say for the first two albums, but I there weren't parts of this where I was like, oh boy, this is a hard listen or abrasive to me. It was... Um, it always it, stayed yeah. centered in... in an, there's an accessibility, I think, throughout this. And so even when they do stuff that's a little outside the box, it's not in a way that's... I find like challenging me in a way that's designed to make it hard for me to listen. I think there's always an open door. Yeah. I think it just in the realm of talking heads, it felt that it felt more abstract or I mean, maybe because I know some of what talking heads become later. Mm -hmm. It didn't to me because yeah. I think of them as being a band that doesn't color in the lines and, and yeah, their, their first two albums colored in the lines a little bit more certainly yeah. than this one. But, um, yeah, and that's, I think that's kind of what I was in the comparison point to that. And it's, I mean, in no way is this the pop group, you know, it's I, when I say right. like well, jarring yeah, yeah. or like, you know, it's not like, <laughs> oh my God, like this is a very listenable album, but sure. I'm just saying it's, it's just one of those things where it's interesting where there's parts of the songs that might, that make you go, okay, I like this. And then they do something, it's like a note or like a little, little, little part that makes you go, eh, I don't. I don't know if I would have. I, I if, if that's grabbing me as much, or maybe it, yeah. And so I guess jarring in that regard because it's kind of, you know, it's going in a different direction in the same song that you didn't expect it to, and it didn't really gravitate towards. So it's yeah, it's not. It, it's it's a little bit nitpicking, John, because it's yeah. I don't want to make it sound like oh my gosh, this was totally hard to listen to. Um, it's just that I found I found my level of enjoyment listening to the other two being being higher than this. And um, I was I was hoping I was going to get more of that feeling here than I ended up doing. Hmm. Yeah, I might I might have been higher on this one than you guys hmm. were. I I might put this as my favorite of the three. Hmm. Wow. I yeah I don't know. I I'm still pretty high on this album. I just don't um, compared to the other two. I don't know. And I would have liked. I mean, it'd be interesting to to have listened to this without listening to the other two. Yeah. You know, because that yeah. I was definitely using those other two as a comparison point. Um, so I still like it. I'm still thumbs up, you know, I would listen and I would like to, I want to listen to this more to try to, you know, cause I Whoa. think that this is something that could definitely grow. It's like have some growers on it for sure. And I, I liked, I liked it more as like, as the week went on just in this week. So um, and, I think and that I'll end with this so that we don't go too long. I, I, one thing, I don't know if I need to compare to the others because I like the idea that we've listened to three albums and each of them have had their own hallmarks. Um, yeah. And that's uh -huh. something I really like about a band that there's, there's a commonality to a band that I can recognize them and they're familiar and I like them, but never in a way where I feel like I'm either getting the same stuff or I'm getting such a deviation that it's like, oh, this is this band's creative album, you know, where they're like stretching in a way that it's like, uh, they've kind of lost 
what makes right. them them, right? Like the talking heads, the experimentation never loses a piece of who they are, but they're creative without seeming like they're being contrived or, you know, following mm-hmm. a script just, you know, oh, now it's time for our creative album. Like they did that on this album, but it doesn't feel convoluted, if that makes sense. They, they went in a different direction, but it wasn't like, okay, now here's our dance album. Like right, they might have right, had right. an idea, but like they integrated it in a way that was not, you know, shoving around a round hole right. into a square peg and you recognize it. Correct. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder also what percentage of bands that are going to be in our a, a decade endless involve Brian Eno. Is it going to be like 25% <laughs> or something? Brian Eno. Yeah. <laughs> Quite uh, a bit. Yeah. Maybe he's, he's all over the place. I yeah. just, what's the percentage of bands that he, well, Bowie, too. That he's Bowie probably with. is right yeah. up there with Eno. Cause he's, he was yeah. a mad. He was a madman, and he was on coke. So <laughs> yeah. you know, what I mean, it's like Jesus. You know, when you think about that, you're like, that's an incredible effort. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well speaking right. of coke, Co- I was about got- to say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you stole my line, Josh. You take it. Go with oh. it. We have Fleetwood Max rumors, or if you're British, it's rumors, and <laughs> with uh, the U. Yeah. And uh, in the opening montage, you have "Go Your Own Way," and now you're going to hear the chain. Matt, what are the stats on Fleetwood Mac? Fleetwood Mac's Rumors comes in at number six in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums. Number one in 1977, number 25 of all time. This is a banger, fellas. It's uh, Fleetwood Mac's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. And in Rolling Stone, number seven of all time. Yep. Have we covered any albums that are in, well, we probably covered some that are in the six, right? In the top six in that? In Rolling Stone? Yeah. Well, this is Marvin the Gaye is one, one right? Oh, Marvin right, Gaye. Right. We did Pet Sounds. We Beach did Boys, Blue. Yeah. We did Songs in the Key of Life. We did Abbey Road. The only one we haven't done yet, never mind. Number okay, six. So, so music stopped after 1991, yeah. <laughs> apparently, according to Rolling Stone, which is so on point for Rolling Stone. Well, Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill's number 10, and that was 98, John. So. Okay. Let's hire a couple folks to throw some hip-hop albums in so we don't look too much like baby boomers. I feel like that's what the last chart was. So, well, Fleetwood Mac is one of those bands that had 10 albums out before we get yeah. to get to rumors. I don't Amazing. know how much you know about Fleetwood Mac pre-Nicks uh, and Buckingham joining the band, but uh, 
they are kind of like Michael Jackson off the wall. You're like, oh, they had albums before that. Yeah, they're they like did. the Bee Gees. I always think yes. they're like that. They had this whole other career before they became like, yep. massive, massive stars. It was a. Uh, shocking to see when i looked at the list um so i'm gonna try and do a, as brief i can covering all that that time uh, fleetwood mac formed in 1967 by uh peter green mick fleetwood jeremy spencer and john mcphee um, or later uh, slightly later john mcphee and then they started out um, as a british blues band peter green and um, had been part of Jan John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, along with uh, Fleetwood and McVie. And uh, we have mentioned John Mayall and the Blues Breakers before. What other prominent artist oh. was in it? I know that, I've, I don't remember who it is, but... I, any guesses, I know... John? Oh, gosh. I feel like it's one of the members of Cream, but I'm probably wrong. You are right. It's Eric oh, Clapton. Is it, is he it Eric in... Clapton? That's what I yes. thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Green replaced Eric Clapton after he left. John there we go. Figures. Smarter um, than I thought I was. And so while they were with that band, um, the three of them, I guess John Mayall gave them studio time to mess around or record with, and they recorded some own so some of their own songs separately, the three of them. And they, one of the songs was an instrumental named Fleetwood Mac, which is a combination of Mick Fleetwood and Mac being short for McVie. So that's where the name comes from. And uh, after that, Peter Green decided they wanted to form their own band in uh, Fleetwood Mac. And however, uh, despite coming up with that name and using it, McVie did not join right away. Um, he was he liked the consistency and steady paycheck of being in the Blues Breakers, so he didn't join. But after the band made their debut at the Windsor Jazz and Blues Festival in 67, McVie joined a few weeks after that. So they had a self-titled debut album that included the single Black Magic Woman, later a big hit for Santana, which we've covered. Huh. And their second album, Mr. Wonderful, came out in 68 and featured Christine Perfect the first time, later Christine McVie, who we hear on Rumors. Um, she was on keyboards in there, so she has an early beginning with the band as well. And uh, later in 68, they added a third guitarist in the 18-year-old Danny Kerwin, who was with the band from 68 to 72. And then they released a third album in January of 69 titled English Rose, which is actually half of the songs from the previous album mixed with new songs that Kerwin contributed to uh, to the band. So, And then they also released a live album at this point in December of 69, uh, Fleetwood Mac in Chicago, which would be their last pure blues album. So they get away from that uh, after three albums, three and a half albums. Um, also, really fun fact that I didn't know that Mick Fleetwood was the brother-in-law of George Harrison. Did you know that? I, I did I not, did know, not that. know that. <laughs> he, he was married to Jenny Boyd, sister of Patty Boyd in 1970. Wow. So they were huh? uh, close, close uh, friends and, and relatives. I did not sense. know that. Yeah. That is uh, a fun fact, Josh. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, their third studio album, um, then Play On came out in September 69, which is their first quote-unquote rock album. And then Peter Green decided to leave the band in May of 1970 due to declining mental health and uh, I think some addiction issues as well. They released a, a fourth album, Kiln House, in September of 70. And this marks a transition in their sound with um, some rock mixed with also some country now thrown in. Uh, Christine Perfect is now married to John McVie, so she is now Christine McVie, and she joins the band on keyboard and vocals, which feature prominently in Rumors. 
And now this this part's crazy. Uh, while on tour in February of 1971, guitarist Jeremy Spencer said he was going out to, quote, get a magazine and never returned. They looked for him for several days and then found out he joined the religious group slash cult, the Children of God. And mm. that is a, a cult that is still around. Um, he actually still never... Yes, he is still affiliated with it. Um, actually, I think the cult is known for some child abuse, sexual abuse type oh. stuff too. It's taken on different forms. And strangely enough, uh, Rose McGowan used to be part of this group. And also River Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix, and that whole family was a part of yeah. that Whoa. thing before they left. Uh, Rose McGowan and the Phoenix family, I think, all left. So there is a... Strange, that's a strange uh, tangent, but I thought it was crazy they never came back. Um, and of all excuses, I'm going to get a magazine. What a bizarre... Yeah. yeah. Hey, you never know who you're going to come across. He came across the child of God at the uh, newsstand. And yeah, that's all so. Did they say he, he left knowing he was going to go or like on the trip to the magazine? That's, or we'll never know. Yeah. I was trying to... I couldn't find the answer to that. It was... I was wondering that myself. How premeditated was there? Was he that like is a, a good question, though. Because if that because if that happened on the way to the magazine, that's a pretty good salesman right there. Because <laughs> yeah. if he's still there, geez. you also you also know you're something well within the Wikipedia thing. In the first couple sentences, you see former members have accused the group of child sexual abuse, <laughs> yeah. physical abuse, exploitation, yep. the targeting of vulnerable people, and creating lasting trauma among children. Yeah, great. Jeez, <laughs> definitely. Not a good uh, influence. Um, so Peter Green temporarily came back to fill in after Jeremy Spencer left, and they hired a um, man by the name of Bob Welch um, in the summer of 71, and he was with the band in um, 74. So Peter Green filled in, then Bob Welch took over for Peter Green um, as a guitarist and um, was with the band till 74. Their fifth album, Future Games, was released in September of 71, and six months later... Um, Bear Trees, their sixth studio album was released. These albums, all these uh, following albums now feature kind of constantly changing lineups. There's people that come and go and they bring new people in, guitarists and things like that. Um, they fired Danny Kerwin um, due to alcoholism and problems on tour. Um, they released a seventh album called Penguin, an eighth album called Mystery to Me. And uh, during this time, personal problems within the band also started to occur that would carry over into rumors, primarily being uh, marital problems between Christine and John McVie and also um, uh, Bob Weston, who is the best friend of Mick Fleetwood um, and a guitarist in the band having a uh, an affair with, <laughs> with his wife, Jenny Boyd. Um, so... Yeah, and then they uh, obviously they fired Bob Weston from the band after that and canceled the tour, and um, and they said that the band was splitting up. In '73, however, the band manager Clifford Davis was left with major touring commitments after all the drama canceled basically the tour that they had just started. So he put together a fake Fleetwood Mac lineup to complete the tour. Um, I don't think this has happened on the show before. For, Fleetwood for Daddy Mac. <laughs> the members of this lineup were told that Mick Fleetwood would join the band and that it was sanctioned by him and that he would be joining them on tour, but he did not uh, promise that or said that was true. <laughs> that was a lie. Punk. They got punked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a somewhat wild twist, uh, they started the tour in January of 74 and they were actually really good and 
the crowds liked them. But then uh, once they found out they weren't the real Fleetwood Mac, the crowds turned on them. <laughs> they didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that's uh, pre-social media for you. Um, the band eventually dissolved and the tour was canceled again, I guess. And then inevitably there was a lawsuit over the rights to the name Fleetwood Mac that was settled four years later. Um, I just can't imagine being in that band and then finding out (laughs) you're not you're not not really Fleetwood Mac or you're not this wasn't supposed to happen Um, while all this was going on Bob Welch was in LA and convinced the band to move from England to California um, LA primarily um, more specifically and uh, rock promoter Bob Graham a lot of Bob's in this bio convinced Warner Brothers um, who was their label um, that they were the real Fleetwood Mac and that (laughs) the uh you know mcvee and peter green and fleetwood were the real ones and they should um you know reform basically and and warner brothers sanctioned that i guess and managed themselves i guess warner brothers was also managing this fake fleetwood mac i don't know what the thing was with that i guess because they were using the name they were still considered fleetwood mac and uh so then they reformed and they recorded their ninth album heroes are hard to find uh, later on Bob Welch left the band in 74 and Fleetwood Mac began looking for a replacement and he heard a track from the album Buckingham Knicks because they were a duo before they joined Fleetwood Mac and they brought him in and also as you probably know Buckingham and Knicks were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time as well and Lindsay only agreed to join the band if Stevie Nicks could also come with him because they were a unit and uh, so she thought that they could add something to the band and agreed and um and then Fleetwood agreed and they all uh joined the band in New Year's Eve of 1974 so that's the lineup that we are in now and in 75 they released their 10th album the self-titled Fleetwood Mac with with, with the lineup that we have in rumors uh, McVie 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 Fleetwood Buckingham and Nicks and that album was a huge um, breakthrough for the band it's a transition to the pop sound that we often think of solely of Fleetwood Mac as before all the blue stuff or after all the blue stuff and it was hugely successful album also reached number one in the U.S. and sold over well, that's got Rhiannon and Landslide on it yep those were two of the big ones also Say You Love Me was another big one on mm. that and uh yeah so this is the true transition and and buckingham is a big contributor to that sound the pop sound that they bring um, that's on rumors as well so by this point in 76 the band is under extreme personal stress john and christine mcvee were in the midst of a divorce while recording rumors uh, buckingham and nicks were also breaking up at the time fleetwood Uh, was getting a divorce from Jenny Boyd at this time and all of this coupled with a large amount of cocaine contributed to uh, the making of rumors and uh, it's incredible cocaine's a hell of a drug it sure it sure is Uh, the um, it's amazing that this album is as amazing as it is with, with the amount of stress I can't imagine being in the same room with all these people you know with your ex essentially and making I'm an album um or x's yeah right in some cases yes (laughs) just a lot going on anyway and uh this album was released in february uh, february 4th 1977 it was recorded in february of 76 in 
Sausalito, California, in a studio called the Record Plant, which is this funny, like, wooden building, essentially, with very few windows. It just kind of looks like <laughs> in the woods, this, like, wooden shack almost. I mean, it's nicer than that, but that's how I pictured it. And uh, engineers Ken Calais and Richard Dashett were brought in and shared production duties with the band. And um, also during this time, uh, Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie lived in two condos near each other in Sausalito away from the rest of the band and they were kind of friends and safety net for each other and they really didn't none of the band really interacted with each other outside of being in the studio um, uh, the working title of this album was Yesterday's Gone and uh, Buckingham really took a lead in producing the album along with uh, working with Christine McVie and creating the compositions um, for the music. The members of the band, as I said, did not meet or socialize after their work. Uh, also, there was um, tensions between Buckingham um, and the band kind of in the recording process as well. Buckingham, McVie, Christine McVie, and Nick's were all songwriters um, on this album and worked individually, but also kind of shared lyrics among themselves. Uh, the Chain is the only track in which all members of the band collaborated and are credited on. All of the songs, if you didn't know or hear, are about personal relationships, good and bad. And uh, You Make Loving Fun is about <laughs> another part of drama. Christine McVie at this time is dating Fleetwood Mac's lighting director. So that song is about him. Um, and he wasn't even allowed around or in the studio <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> Um, Nix herself said, I watch, oh, I, you know, we've, we've often watched those classic album documentaries, um, that series. I watched the one on this album and Nix herself just outright said, gold dust woman is about cocaine. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you don't say I could have yeah. told you that instantly. Yeah. Um, Buckingham came up with secondhand news, the opening track after hearing the Bee Gees jive talking, which immediately made sense after he, I heard him mm -hmm. say that. Um, and McVie, John McVie and Buckingham often clashed with about the makeup of the songs and kind of the recording process as well, although they, they ultimately agreed that it worked out for the best. And they never um, dated, right? No, no, they <laughs> okay. did not. Um, uh, uh, Fender Rhodes Electric Piano and the Hammond Organ make appearances on this album, along with uh, the clavinet and dobro, many instruments that we've talked about before. And then Fleetwood Mac demo demoed some tracks at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A. at this time. And John McVie suggested the album title Rumors because he felt the members were, quote, writing journals and diaries about each other through the music. Um, Warner Correct. Brothers, yes. Warner Brothers chose Go Your Own Way as the promo single and their aggressive marketing to radio stations resulted in over 800,000 advanced copies of the album. Uh, as I said, it was released February 4th, 1977, and a week later in the UK. The front of the album has uh, McFleetwood and Stevie Nicks in her Rhiannon stage persona, and, and uh, shortly after, they started a seventh-month promo tour of the U.S. This album was an instant success in the UK and the U.S., sold over 10 million copies within its first month um Jesus. stayed on the, yeah it stayed on the charts for 31 non-consecutive weeks it won album of the year at the grammys in 1977 
and it was later added to the National Recording Registry um, and the Library of Congress. Um, I do have some post stuff that's much shorter because it just keeps going on and there's breakups and fucking reunions and all sorts of stuff and solo projects and whatnot, but multiple I, Clinton presidencies <laughs> using the songs. Yes. You know, I brought yeah. that. Yes. I was going to mention that. Don't stop. Uh, was his campaign theme song. And, um, it was his I, omnipresent <laughs> fight song was during Hillary <laughs> And I'm sure we've all heard, uh, this album at one point or another in our lives. So what did you think about, rumors this time around well first i have to mention that i found out about mr spencer josh while we were talking right oh, here okay. yeah, so here's a quick me. aside right there despite many rumors of brainwashing and forced induction into the organization spencer has always maintained that he joined the organization of his free will he had been approached by say. a young man named apollos who engaged spencer in conversation about god and invited him to a nearby mission where other members were staying during the evening, Spencer became convinced that his change of direction was the best course for him to take. Oh my God, and by so the time really Fleetwood happen. Mac found him, his <laughs> mind was made up. Despite his continued confidence to this day that he made the right choice, he said that the manner of his departure from the group was regrettable. The way I left was wrong and a mistake. I should have told them right away, but I was desperate. Wow. So there you go. There is a postscript for Mr. Spencer. Good God. <laughs> so, I mean... Is there an album that is more defined by their singles than this one? Because I don't know. Like this is just like six massively huge singles that I mean if you've listened to pop music over the last 45 years, Dreams, Don't Stop, Go Your Own Way, The Chain, You Make Love and Fun and Gold Dust Whoop. I mean those things mm -hmm. are like it's almost the only thing I could think of was like Boston, right? Where there's just like one you know, FM radio staple after another. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the songs that aren't the big singles, I'm not going to call them filler, but I, none of them pop. It's like, ooh, there's a hidden gem. It's like, no, all six of the singles are exactly the songs that make this album. Um, this album's one of those albums that it like, that the joke was always like, if you were born in like the 70s, right? They issued this at birth, you know, rumors at birth, <laughs> yeah. I think was the joke. And you get it, because we talked about certain albums transcending the era. This like transcends the era, but you never have any doubt that this album was recorded in the 70s. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the 70s. It's the, the whole, the, the cocaine-soaked nature of this album and the <laughs> gleaming production. It's just, and this isn't negatives, by the way, because this, you know, you just... You really just don't get albums like this nowadays, do you? I, I think some of this illustrates like the, the concept of an album, right? Where mm -hmm. a massive album is just an album where you it's a collection of singles, but also with the theme, and then boom, it's the thing you think of when you're there. And that's kind of what Rumors is. It's Rumors is, to some degree, Fleetwood Mac, and Fleetwood Mac is Rumors. They have mm -hmm. other... We've mentioned many other hits but like yeah. i don't think there's anyone who knows fleetwood mac that if they're like what are some of their albums like in some ways it's like you know i don't really know their album i don't think anybody who knows fleetwood mac wouldn't know that this album existed right. um it it's I, I things i like about fleetwood mac i think lindsey buckingham is a very underrated guitar player um i know he's also a little bit of the composition um guy for most of the fleetwood mac stuff that i like i know the album after this tusk is ridiculously excessive um so it's like the good and the bad of fleetwood mac which you know fleetwood mac always retains a sort of folk music feel to them which i think is an homage to the old fleetwood mac and i didn't nix and buckingham start out as like a folk rock duo too 
Yeah, I got. I, yeah. I, I kind of got that impression. Yeah, I think that's how they started. I remember reading something. I think they like met in high school. They were like playing like California Dreaming, which is like right mm-hmm. on the nose, right along yeah. the way. But uh, yeah, I like that. I have always thought the bass lines in Fleetwood Mac are really good. In fact, I think back to the old rock band days, mm-hmm. Matt and we would play, and there were a few bass lines that were more fun to play than Go Your Own Way, which is just a, a I think a really awesome pop rock song it's just it's instantaneously catchy it's just it's kind of it's always for my entire life been a song that's like impossible to not like sing along to to some degree for me i don't know i think it's because you can sing a stevie nicks or lindsey buckingham in that song which is key to the success of that because it's like two different songs even though it's the same uh the chain is a really unique song um I, I once again, it, it's instantly recognizable. Uh, Dreams is as well. Uh, Christine McVeigh writes some of my very favorite songs of Fleetwood Mac. I just there's something about her voice that I really like, uh, and her voice is usually coupled with really good bass lines. Her songs, I well, I think of Christine McVeigh McVeigh songs. It's kind of like I think of the bass lines because they always stand out. And no difference in this with "You Make Love and Fun," which mm-hmm. um, I think is always a sleeper Fleetwood Mac song. Um, it's not talked about a, a lot. Yeah, I but... agree. It's pretty. It's pretty great. And in and in uh, uh, Gold Dust, uh, Gold Dust Woman, along with Rihanna, are like to me the ultimate Stevie Nicks songs. They kind of give you the Stevie Nicks persona, right? Mm-hmm. Like gypsy, witchy, you know, witchy. Yeah, yeah. like I, I don't witchy like woman. like white witch kind of. I guess would be like how you describe her uh, of the earth kind of. And yeah, I mean. It sounds like it, and they're they're just they're all in, you know. So you have a little bit of each of them in there. I thought, like, I kind of went through a period where I hated the song "Don't Stop," but then I listened to it in this, and I'm like, I don't hate this song, like in the context of this album. I think yeah. it's just it was so overplayed, and like, I just, I just thought of it as such a boomer song. <laughs> it just was like the ultimate like sound yeah. of the boomers. I think it was kind of like I, I remember just laughing as a kid. It's like when there's these people in 1992 talking about the future and they're playing a song from like 1976, I always just, and I think it biased me to like, don't stop, you know? Cause it's mm-hmm. like, really? Like you can't pick a modern song for the modern, but, but yeah, I didn't hate it as much on this, which was a pleasant surprise, but I, it's hard for me to analyze. Is this like one of my favorite albums? No. Do I enjoy this album in the hits? For sure. Um, it kind of falls into my lane of like big pop rock. I yeah. like big pop rock. Do I think of it as the artistic creation that some of the other albums that really spoke to me creatively are? Like, no. But do I appreciate the the gift that it takes to write this many like massive mega singles? And can I appreciate just this? substantive nature of what that's like mm-hmm. i mean how many albums like that are in the 70s like i said that boston album probably tapestry by carol king um there aren't many right where they're just churning out this many and in the 80s right. you've got a couple right like if thriller comes to mind and stuff but like there aren't many you know albums where they just hammer this many singles one after another after another that have um that still have credibility to this day so yeah, I, I would I would recommend this. I mean, God, who hasn't heard, I feel like who hasn't heard this album who's not, you know, coming along the musical journey. But if you haven't, yeah, you have, kind of have to listen to it because it's it's the American songbook of the 70s to some degree yeah, in pop like, music at least. I, it's comparable to the Eagles in my mind in terms of like popularity and and kind of hits on one album. Yeah, I mean, they sold it, but do the Eagles even have an album that's as 
a specific album that's yeah. as big as rumors is no, i mean a lot of there's like greatest hits and stuff so yeah yeah, yeah. true mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a reason why this album is sold so much um, <laughs> yeah because it's freaking awesome and i don't yes it is it is it reinventing the wheel i mean no because you're you know it's and that's kind of interesting listening to this in the context of this podcast when we've covered so many artists that it's like wow this is like this is breaking new ground and this is doing this thing and this is right. doing that you know and this is not really doing any of this. This is just a, this is rock, pop, you know. Um, it's folk, just, for sure. Folk, yeah, for sure. Um, it, but it's just, it's one great song after another. I there's I, th- I love this album, and it was just, it was really fun going back to it. As soon as I listened to it, I, 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 and I disagree, John. I think that there's plenty of hidden gems in here, like Songbird's really? a beautiful song. That's a... That's that's the type of song that I wish Joni Mitchell had done, and melodically at least, because yeah. it's got that it's got it's a very Joni Mitchell type sounding song, but it's got so the melody there is so much better than what I for me than what I heard with what Joni Mitchell did. That's just a there's really, no edge really, though. There's I don't no care. Edge. I don't. Well, I'm just that, saying, but you can't be Joni like write that because you can't be Joni mm, Mitchell and want to write that song. You get what I'm like. You, I'm talking you, about the melody. Yeah. I'm not talking about the lyrics. Oh, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You can't, like you can't say I wish Joni Mitchell wrote this because Joni Mitchell could never have written that song because it's not who Joni Mitchell is. You get what I'm saying? Kind I'm, of. But uh, but yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the. I'm not talking about the lyrics. I'm talking about the music, right? Yeah. Like Joni Mitchell didn't have a ton of edge in her in the actual sonic part of her music. It was like guitar it was like you know acoustic guitar playing and piano playing. It was mm-hmm. it was fine. But I'm talking about the melody. I would have liked to listen to that because me being the music guy, I wanted to hear more of that. That's all I'm saying. Um, and uh, I think, I think secondhand news is a really good opening track. I think that, I agree. Um, yeah. I think that uh, what else is on here? That's kind of never going back again. That's a really cool, that, that guitar lick that Lindsey Buckingham's doing is really great. Um, so I, I don't think that there's the only thing on the only song on here that I would kind of agree with you, John, is don't stop. I do absolutely think of the Clinton thing. <laughs> and I remember watching the, you know, in 92 or whatever, you know, their, their uh, rallies and hearing the song. And I was like, what is this song? Like everybody's really, and I just think of, and it's not even the Clintons. I think of Alan Tipper Gore, like really getting, this is more of an Al Gore sound song to me when I hear it. And it just, it makes me roll my eyes a little bit, but it's, I, I've, I've warmed up to it a little bit more, but that's probably my least favorite song on this. And that's probably because of the Clinton, uh, just how omnipresent I, it was. Can I quickly go into the, I have to, I had to look this up for Songbird because it really does illustrate that I'm the lyrics guy and you're not because I totally get what you're saying, but mm-hmm. I'm just laughing thinking about, especially the vocal commenters on Joni Mitchell have hearing that. And you know, for you, I, there okay, will be no but more I wasn't, crying no, for dude, you. The I, sun I, will be shining and all that I feel with you. It's all right. Yes. You know, it's right. Like I can't see Joni Mitchell writing that. Ever. Dude, you get I what was I'm not. Yeah. Ta- yeah That's you're you're totally, yeah. every time I talk about a song, you go to the lyrics and talk. I, I am not yeah. talking about the lyrics. <laughs> I am never talking about okay. the lyrics. Okay. Fair enough. So Fair when enough. I say I want Joni Mitchell to sound more like that, I'm not talking about yeah. the lyrics. I'm talking about the music, which gotcha. is why I didn't like Joni Mitchell because she didn't have a beautiful melody to me the way mm-hmm. that Songbird is. So it doesn't surprise me that the lyrics are cheesy, but I am I am totally into that piano progression. Her voice is fantastic. It's a it's a beautiful sounding song. Um, and I guess the, the best I could say about the lyrics are, 
they're not so bad where they stand out to me and I go, oh my God, that's terrible. And I do that sometimes. I heard that in Boston, right? I heard that in some of the Boston, like we're in a, whatever. I'm not going to get too much mm-hmm. into that, but that's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is an album that uh, I, I really, The Chain is a great song. I think the first time I heard that, a college band, a buddy's band was playing that um, at like a bar somewhere. And I was listening to it like, what is this? Like, this is a really cool song. And somebody's like, it's Fleetwood Mac. And I'm like, really? Like, that's, I think that might have been the first time I was really kind of, maybe I should check out this Rumors album. Um, but uh, I agree, John, the uh, Go Your Own Way bass line, that is a bass line. That's, we ta- I talked about this last week. Um with a guitar part from Rock Lobster, right? How I never really yeah. picked that out, and I never really picked out that bass line. That's the problem with that song on this, is that the bass is turned way too down. That bass line is so fantastic. That needs to be turned up. Whoever mixed this screwed that up, because that is a fantastic bass line that's just buried underneath all the other great stuff that's going on, but that it, it, it needs to be more prominent, because it's really, really good. There's, I agree. There's with that, with the chain there, you know, John McVie's got some really, really good bass lines. So I agree with that, but I like the variety on this. Um, you know, even though it's kind of like, you know, it, it is of its time and everything like that, but you, uh, what is it? You make, uh, you make loving funds kind of like a, like a disco kind of a song mm. like that. Is that, that funk, that funk, bass kind of thing going on is that like um, bow, bow, doo, yeah bow, bow, doo, bow. it's not quite a running bass line but it's like uh i'm trying but to it's think def- like, it's like he's yeah. plucking it or something like that and there's an effect that definitely mm-hmm. as soon as i heard that this time around i'm like oh god that's 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 probably the most 70 sounding song on this record um so uh yeah but i love the love the vocals are great i love the i love that this one of those bands that you know sometimes you're getting lindsey buckingham singing sometimes stevie nicks and christy mcphee yes. they're all they're all mixing it up pretty well there um yes this is a very much of a boomer album but that's not always a bad thing because if they it, it sounds great i love it i'm big thumbs thumbs up on rumors yeah the um i mean this is almost a I totally get why this album sold a zillion copies. Yeah. It's because it's like a perfect pop album. <laughs> there, I would argue that there's no bad songs on this album. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things. And then, like, if every other song is a massive fucking single, then you're going to have... How could that not be successful? Um, I agree with you guys 100%. I think a lot of these songs were overplayed in my youth, and that's why I kind of, like didn't think about it but it's been so long since i heard it that kind of felt fresh again this time around um the harmonizing for me with between the three of them is kind of a big strength of this iteration of fleetwood mac i think they complement each other really well the fact that stevie and they all kind of bring mcvee and buckingham and nicks kind of all bring something different vocally when they're when they're adding um, things to songs i think that's a great thing i think the drumming is great and solid on this um i think there is a lot of different instruments and kind of uh things that they use uh, acoustic guitar electric guitar all those instruments i mentioned before with, with the keyboards um, and some other things like, I don't know, congas or maracas or like tambourine or something. I think they all kind of try and make every song sound different, um, kind of anchored by their, by their singing. And, um, I really responded to it. I thought the other strong thing about a, a successful pop album is that you can sing along to it and you can certainly sing along to most of these songs, especially in the choruses. Um, I think the chain is really almost kind of underrated and it's something i like about tusk uh, later on is kind of that that instrumental opening that slow build 
where they finally um, then drop the lyrics into it. Um, I think I think that's really strong, and I think this is an album that, uh, despite being of the '70s, kind of spans generations, and I think people of all ages can appreciate it. Um, I certainly like it. I know my mom loves this album. I um I'll only push back on the idea that I don't feel this is a perfect album. Like that all the songs are. I really do feel the singles pop hmm. way more than the. I think that all of the non-singles have sort of a, with the exception of uh, "Song for the Ballad," have sort of like a. I wouldn't. They're not bad, but the, it's like a folk thing that doesn't speak to me, and they are to me instantaneously the second tier songs on the album and i think that might be the only thing that holds me back from the enthusiastic yes that you guys have it's still very much a yes for me um i i remember reading once that like one of the things that hurts fleetwood mac in in terms of the serious critic so to speak is that they're kind of they compare like duran duran where everybody can play their instruments but they have like the rep of being like a professional band kind of as opposed to like a a vibrant band, right? You know what I mean? Hmm. They're like solely professional and they play professional. And there's some truth to that, I think, because um, like Fleetwood Mac, I appreciate the craftsmanship of their stuff. And like you guys said, they crafted these songs that are there, but I do, I think that's what I struggle with sometimes. Like some of those songs, they lack a little bit of heart for me. Hmm. Um, And that might be the only thing with some of the songs um, they just have become so big that it's hard to like have an emotional yeah. connection to them. And I don't know if that's their fault. I think it's just, it's the nature of when a song or songs become that big. And that would be the only thing I say. Really only the chain, I would say, still resonates. And dreams maybe a little bit, like still resonates like an emotional connection to me. As much as mm. I like go your own way, it's not like I'm like, ooh, you know, it's more like, ooh, nice, I like this bit. But that's the only thing I would argue is to, I I've mentioned before I need to feel from my gut a little bit sometimes for an album to transcend into like truly great and I that's the only quibble I'd have about this album I don't know how often it puts me there hmm. yeah there's definitely something at a certain point once you've heard because I think I've listened to this album only twice and normally I listen you know this week and I I would normally listen to a record particularly ones I didn't know that well like six seven times during a week you know just throughout the week and um I, yeah, this was like, I, I'm good. Like, you know, I need to focus. I want to listen to a gang of four more because, you yeah. know, um, something like that. So I, I get it. And it's, and yeah, it does go your own way sound as great today as it did when I first really got into it. No, probably not. But it's, it's, I still really like it. And that bass part mm-hmm. still gets me. You oh, know? yeah. No, um, yeah. I, I so agree. I, and, and it is. And it's, I'm really differentiating between, you know, albums that, are just really this groundbreaking thing and ones that just are speak for what they are, you know, and, um, and I'm still okay with that. And I, and I just get as much enjoyment out of this as I would just about any album, to be quite honest. I really do like this. And it's funny. You just brought up dreams, John. That's an out song. We haven't really talked a whole lot about that is by far the most listened to song on Spotify. It's closing in on a billion listens. <laughs> I think it's because it was in, it that, was in a yes. recent movie or TV show. It was I think a that's meme or something, life. wasn't it? That yeah, guy? it was. So, it was like oh, eating yeah, his guy, ice cream. The skateboarding on his, guy. Yeah, yeah, anything that's old yeah. that has a lot of listens is is, is involved in a meme. You know, because you just it's don't get to. Yeah, yeah. nine hundred and twenty-six million listens. Jeez. So, yeah. 
But it's a great song, yeah. I and you're talking to a guy that slobbered all over that Boston album, and you know, unpopularly stand for a Kiss album, and you know, loves Van Halen. So I get it, you know. And I am never gonna say that this album didn't deserve. So it's 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 impossible to uncouple this from popular music in the '70s, and that means it's a consequential album. Yeah, there was I a think, time. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, but I think that's just. It's it's a it's an interesting case study because an album mm. sometimes gets so big that it's hard to it's hard to discuss it as an artistic element when it has like a cultural element. Yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. There was a time where I liked this album so much that um, when I did when I, I did a semester of study abroad in Ireland in college, and I couldn't bring a ton of stuff with me, so I brought like a portable. Uh, case when I had my CD player, my portable CD player, and I could put 10 CD, I could bring 10 CDs with me. And this was one of the ones that I brought. So Wow. Like, okay. Yeah. So it's like almost a Desert Island wow. CD for you. It, at, at that, that time it was. I mean, I certainly wouldn't, I don't know if I would put a Desert Island album now, but at the time I was like, I was just getting into it too. That's part of yeah. the reason why, you know? So I was like, I really like this. I want to listen to it some more. So um, yeah, I love it. I love it. I love this record. Yeah. I won't. I, I, I see what John's saying. It won't be in my top 10 of the decade, but it's still really fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know what's cool about this album, too? You can listen to it com- as the squarest person on earth and think that it's an album speaking to you. And you can also <laughs> listen to this and completely get that it's a cocaine-soaked album as well. And yeah. I think that's also hilarious because I could see the most boring, you know, conservative person listening to this and going, listen to all these pop songs. They It's about love and, like, a heartbreak i really connect it and then like you could be like me and listen to it and go oh yeah gold dust woman's absolutely about coke and i knew that when i was like 15 years old you know and it's like it's just funny how it could be both because somebody could hear it as like a love song right like a deep and then somebody mm-hmm. could hear it as like uh, you know a love song about coke and they're both right which i think is what makes an album sell 10 million copies in the first you know yep. you can't sell 10 million copies if only one group of those people listen to your album. You have to be able to get both, you know. And yep. credit to Fleetwood Mac for yeah, making if you an could album get the romantic, if you get the romantics and the cokeheads to uh, to, to <laughs> jive on an album, that's that's saying something. Well, yeah. there are romantic cokeheads, so in fairness, there is a Venn diagram overlap. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's like you could come at this from a lot of angles, and yeah, mm. still hmm. get it. So post rumors. Um, Buckingham wanted to make the next album more experimental, which resulted in Tusk, as John mentioned, a 20-track double album. Uh, it felt know. like two and a half hours the first <laughs> yeah. time I listened to it. I remember thinking, oh, boy, this must yeah. mean what they mean by excessive. Yep. It's their second highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. At I always think of them the marching 70s. out the USC like yes. marching band yes. with that concert when they came back. I was like, ugh. Yeah, because they're, they're featured on Tusk. Um, the album was released in 79. Think About Me and Sarah were the other singles on that. And then they released another album called Mirage in 82. After uh, Fleetwood, Nix, and Buckingham all released solo stuff in that time period, the band then went on hiatus and pursued more solo work. Also during this time, Nix went into rehab. Uh, Fleetwood filed for bankruptcy, and John McPhee suffered an addiction-related seizure. And then the final album by the Rumors lineup of Fleetwood Mac was Tango in the Night in 1987. As John mentioned, the band uh, reunited at President Clinton's request to play the inaugural ball. Um, (laughs) They also, during that time, released uh, some 
some more albums, greatest hits, a box set of stuff, and uh, the lineup. Is it, re- <laughs> isn't it kind of funny that Bill Clinton's like band is Fleetwood Mac? Yeah. Though that, it's like so on the mark, isn't it? Yeah. Like in terms of what this album's about, and like, yeah, it just mm-hmm. I don't know. It just makes me chuckle. Anyway, continue. the lineup reunited in '97 for the 20th anniversary tour of Rumors, and then uh, and then there's a whole bunch of crap that I got bored about reading after that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of you know Buckingham. Oh, I can hear the Fleetwood back comments already. <laughs> Buckingham leaves, Nick's leaves, they reunite, you know, various like iterations of the band, things like that. Um, Fleetwood Mac was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998, which included the original members, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, Danny Kerwin, plus everyone from Rumors. And um, all the members of the band are still alive um, in this lineup. So, yeah, cocaine, hell of a drug, as you said. Genetics is an interesting (laughs) thing. Yep. And I think they've officially kicked out uh, Lindsey Buckingham finally, like for mm. good. I don't think he's coming back. I mean, for Basically now, we'll see. Pissed off Stevie Nicks <laughs> to the point where she's like, it's either him or me. And they chose oh, uh, they chose, well, he, they chose her, even though he was he the does, one that brought her into the band. Yeah. So He does yeah. have a backup career on What's Up With That, though, on SNL. Yeah. So does, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Lindsey. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's it. Um, rumors, I think, all varying degrees of positive for sure. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you haven't heard this album, please go listen to it. Yeah, it's kind of essential if you want to say mm-hmm. you've you've attempted to listen to the 70s. <laughs> yes. I think like this, like Tapestry, Led Zeppelin Four, Dark right. Side of the Moon. Right, there's a couple that like yeah. you kind of have to listen to to yeah. pretend that you're paying attention. So, um, all right. Well, Matt started this week with billboarding. Josh, yeah. do you want to go over our last cold listen hot take of yep. the 70s? Last one, uh, we've got Public Image Limited, um, Johnny Rotten Band called Metal Box, uh, Throbbing Gristle, Twenty Jazz Funk Greats. <laughs> now that uh, is a band name right there. <laughs> yeah. Sheik's uh, album Risque, The Damned, Machine Gun Etiquette, Squeeze, Cool for Cats, and This Heat, self-titled This Heat. So, right. Actually, I don't think I know any of these bands um maybe you, one song you here or probably there. will know i think squeeze oh, okay. i know chic and i know squeeze and mm-hmm. i know of the damned in public yeah. image limited yeah yeah so. i know a few of these but i don't know if i've listened to i've only listened ever to one of these albums and it was like 25 years ago so i oh, think geez. it'll be a new lesson completely so yeah yeah so, what yeah. a way to end end on coldest not takes in the 70s the coldest, coldest listen, and hottest and the hottest take. <laughs> and that's what you get to look forward to next week. So for Josh and Matt, this is John. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, all the platforms. Amazon Music. Amazon Music. <laughs> you can email us if you're old school. We go gmail.com. Feel free to reach out that way. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Combing the Stacks podcast. We're now available to be liked and followed on 10 unique platforms, including Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Feedback is welcome at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at combingthe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks.